Blog Talk Radio. Humanity, human beings, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace, live beyond love beyond your skin to where you belong Oh, 
Trump's town, this is the town. Look at the
So that's all for the day. So let's get started with our party by welcoming and saying hello to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Hackey, come on in. Thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamati Mishoki, and currently I'm with African Awareness. And, of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is all about institution building. But let me just you know, uh, share this information with you I think was very, very timely. Uh, recently in, the, in the, uh, the British press, it was reported that Dr. Adam Toller was allegedly attacked by a 17-year-old. Now, opposed to uh, Ms. Dr. Toller espousing, you know, um, vindictiveness toward the 17-year-old youth who stabbed him, he expressed some remorse in terms of being stabbed. His only concern was that the young man understand the kind of uh, 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 condition he created for him, you know, by stabbing him. But the kind of um, uh, vindictiveness, the kind of malice toward the young man was not evident. And for me, that struck me as kind of uh, unusual, particularly in the context of how capitalism works. One of the things capitalism does it does a very good job in terms of facilitating vindictiveness. So we got a population of people who are vindictive. And this kind of, this, this lust for revenge uh, is something that's very characteristic of capitalism. And, and one of the things, you know, when you think about it, when you think about in terms of how capitalism cop, uh, operates, it creates so many enemies, even when the creation of the enemies is, is diametrically opposed to the interests of the U.S. economy, you do so anyway, because the drive for vengeance is such so strong. And it seems to me this this whole question in terms of vengeance is something that, you know, I felt that I have to discuss on, on some level in terms of understanding that it's not necessarily when we talk about capitalism about uh, economics, it's about other things in which we often don't talk about. But in any event, Brother Africa, having said that, I want to share this piece with you. I want you to check it out. Uh, and that's vengeful capitalism. Now, when discussing systems normally that are not associated, excuse me, when discussing systems normally, they are not associated with human attributes. In the case of capitalism, there appears to be a vengeful aspect to its functioning. Doling out pain indiscriminately, the level of harm and pain inflicted is undeniable. In the case of Russia, both Gorbachev and Yeltsin capitulated to U.S. interests by incorporating capitalist principles only to find themselves targeted by U.S. officials. China, under the World Trade Organization rules, supported by former President Bill Clinton, now find themselves under the U.S. gaze as a result of competing too well under capitalist rules. Little Cuba, uh, no political threat to anyone, found themselves constrained by the legal blockade because of Cuba's, uh, because of promises of Cuba uh, to countries both economically and um, socially, which, which resulted in the U.S. ruthless U.S. aggression in terms of socioeconomic policy or socioeconomic geopolitical policies or stratagems designed specifically to destroy both life and economy of the Cubans. Now, this propensity to inflict harm is relegated across all subsystems associated with capitalism, which is easily quantified by a rudimental exploration of economic, social, and political systems in service to capitalism. In order to adequately assess the injustices or pain routinely, routinely dispensed by capitalism, the historical evolution of capitalism may shed some light. Now, capitalism in terms of exchanges of goods, and, of goods and services is a human phenomenon. Capitalism, as we know it, is usually accredited to Western innovation without regard to human evolution and the process involved that precipitated human innovation. As such, the concept of markets is just a prize of the 16th century Europe. Does appear to be unique to Western is the concept of private ownership. 
ownership of land by no now ownership of land by the by nobility excuse me ownership of land by nobility class was a source of irritation for peasant farmers, but with the rise of towns, the power to control land rents by the, by nobility were weakened, giving rise to some among the peasants who were given the opportunity to practice bourgeois politics, where private ownership found newfound legitimacy. Now, legitimacy of communal assets like land, water, and raw materials gave way to an individualist ethos that justified individual gain at the expense of others, using or benefiting from resources that existed on the earth long before human evolution. Now, assumptions arose highlighting the value of capitalism's individualistic appeal. Adam Smith's book, Wealth of Nations, Reason, increased profits to private entrepreneurs, increases collective wealth and prosperity. What he failed to recognize was that altruism or the concern for others and capitalism, individualism, are opposing forces. The more confounding aspect of capitalism lies in the assumption economic growth is perpetual. This philosophy, in part, was the rationale for slave trading companies established in Amsterdam, London, and Paris. The notion there existed, and any stream of black bodies for enslavement blinded them to the fact resistance was inevitable. Now, in a more con- contemporary aspect, the printing of currency by, by the Federal Reserve in an, is an indication of this allure to individualism. Making money available for corporations and the wealthy only compounds economic problems as these, in, these interest, individuals use their wealth to buy up more assets like land, houses, and stocks, which artificially pumps up prices. Given declining wages over the last 30 years and the ensuing inflation unofficially at 15%, the market bubble created and elevated will, will bust, will per, will burst as a result of governmental debt, ushering in more death and destruction. Oddly enough, compensating a tiny sector of the population while impoverishing the majority of the population as a testament to free markets suggests a real irony. Free markets suggest non-government intervention and economic affairs. Ironically, the history of intervention by governments have long existed under capitalism. During the feudal age in Europe, royalty would sanction overseas excursions in search of colonies to colonize. Members of these overseas expeditions were granted charters specifically to conduct trade as merchants, while in, while, while in showing they act as a monopoly for all, all business activity. Under this contractual agreement, colonized people had no control or input about the plunder of their resources. In fact, concerns about the plight of indigenous people were not even an afterthought. The only concern was the level of brutality, uh, brutality sufficient enough to subdue colonized people. Ensuing deaths merely translated into higher profits. Now, the role of free markets should not be taken lightly. Now, free markets have many names, and the process to arrive at free markets have manifested much inequality and pain. Monopoly finance capitalism, a predecessor of free markets, began its ascent in post-World War II, mid-19th century. Prior to 1945, industrial capitalism was in operation. Industrial capitalism recognized the importance of employment, fair wages, and good schools. Under monopoly finance capitalism, employment, fair wages, and good schools will become irrelevant. Under monopoly finance capitalism, the economic and social order of the country will be run by big corporations with monopoly power. These corporations will relegate government to unimportant, and the function normally subscribed to government will now be taken over by big corporations. In order for large corporations to consolidate their power, control of the political apparatus was key. Process taken was to organize flow of money using political action committees. This process started in the 1940s, picked up progress in 1970, culminating in the Citizens United ruling in 2010, 
where corporations were free to donate unlimited amounts of money to political causes. Of course, these funds were earmarked for politicians. Now, the next step was to increase advertising to boost consumer spending. This process gave way to advertising, who, according to the Federal Trade Commission, was different from advertisements because deception is illegal with advertising. Conditioning the public how to think was effective. By 2020, the U.S. government was spending $240 billion in advertising or disseminating lies. By 2021, they were spending $285 billion. By 2021, only $80 million was spent for advertisements. So, so in other words, the potential in terms of lying received much more funding than actually being honest in terms of the message that was conveyed to the public. To the public. Now, the game of government deception does have repercussions. Moving from monopoly finance capitalism to financialization has stripped most of the population of their human and civil rights. Financialization, the successor of monopoly finance capitalism, goes a step further in undermining the government and solidifying control of the economic, political, and social system. Financialization empowers central banks or the Federal Reserve to skirt rules and regulations to ensure the profitability of the wealthy at the expense of the majority of the people. For example, financial institutions can issue gold certificates that are worthless. Corporations can engage in Ponzi scheme by using stocks without value or take the invested monies and give themselves huge bonuses. Corporations can even impose arbitration in which disputes was solved by uh, corporations. So we have a problem, a problem with a product. Uh, corporations are in, uh, in control and, and not law. Now, both the government and security and exchange committee are powerless to, to stop them. Now, despite this, Brother Africa, it is a support who pay the bill when investors sue for contractual reasons and government revenues suffer from low taxes on corporations. Services so desperately needed by poor people are unattainable because of low corporate taxes and ensuing inflation increases directly as a result of corporate corruption. Now, when corporations receive funds from the Federal Reserve despite numerous criminal acts like stock, stock manipulation, we can conclude a certain level of duplicity or wrongdoing exists between the two parties. Perhaps even more insidious is the callous disregard of law by corporations or the moral turpitude of their, or, or their actions or the ability to discern right from wrong. Recently, Citizens Responsibility and Ethics pointed out big corporations vowed not to finance 147 lawmakers who voted to overturn the election of Joe Biden. They lied. Of the 717 businesses who promised not to fund the 147 insurrectionist lawmakers who attempted to destroy democracy, they donated $18 million to 143 out of 147 lawmakers. Big corporations who pledged not to find not to fund insurrectionist lawmakers, gave all 147 lawmakers $2.4 million directly or through political action committee. Now, the difference in hostility toward the poor is palpable. If such a system operates independent of government oversight, can systematic overreach be curtailed? If not, what will happen to the little democracies that still exist in America? What assumptions can be made with respect to life and death outcomes in America? And I close with that question, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African Peoples 
Revolutionary Party GC, objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, we now will bring in Brother Moses, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Women hold up half the sky. That's why I support the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And this is a struggle to unite the many, to defeat the few, the, the interests and the aspirations of the 1% are diametrically and, uh, and uh, antagonistically opposed to the vast interests of the majority of, of the working class people. And we we intend to point out that contradiction and hopefully have it resolved in the favor of the working class. In the name of, I I just thank you and have a have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you, Moses. And now bring in Sister Eleanor and welcome her as well to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Good evening, Brother Africa fellow panelists and our listeners, uh, thank you so much. And as Brother Moses said, the real concern that we we face is not uh, anything other than workers beginning to control the means of production rather than, rather than having it controlled by the 1% to have the reality of all production and all uh, resources controlled by the many. Uh, Amazon is an example of that. We see that this week uh, Amazon workers are being threatened to have minimum wage jobs if they attempt to organize unions. So uh, we stand in solidarity. I stand in solidarity with the Amazon workers as well as uh, the Palestinian people and also uh, the Afghanis. Right now there's a huge problem with health care and the care of children. Uh, Thank you so much for having me this evening, Brother Africa. And uh, I look forward to uh, the comments and and the analysis made by the fellow analysts this evening. Thank you, Sister Noah. And we now bring in Brother Maurice, and we will welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Maurice. Good evening. Greetings, Brother Africa. Thank you so much for having me here again tonight. Um, my name is Brother Maurice. I'm a member of SLANG, a youth organization, struggling, living, and never giving up. And I'm also a member of PRSP, Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party. Thank you for having me here again tonight. Thank you, Brother Maurice. And to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. What we're going to do is take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, 
we're going to go into our first segment where we discuss what's going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the Moon. Thank you. 
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move on the 20th day of February 2022. On this particular day, we're going to just like to share with you some aspects of your history or just letting you be aware of on this day, one of our freedom fighters, Frederick Douglass, made the transition in Washington, D.C. in the year 1895. So right now we are moving to our third segment of this program as we're going to talk about what's going on in your world and the community. And we will invite you at this point in time to join us by calling in at 323-679-0841 if you'd like to share with us and the listening world on what's going on in your world and the community. So we start out with you this time, Brother Anthony. We'll bring you in first. And actually, what's going on in your world and the community? Can you hear us, Brother Anthony? Yes. Yes, I can. Uh, let's see. A um, couple of things uh, that come to mind. Uh, Kim, uh, Kim Potter uh, the former police uh, policewoman got a slap on the wrist for killing uh, Dante Wright. And uh, this took place uh, near uh, Chicago, I think. And uh, let's see, and uh, she was convicted uh, for first and second degree men manslaughter uh, for uh, shooting Dante Wright when she meant to aim her taser at him. And uh, this is, um, you know, and this uh, shows how little, uh, uh, you know, what U.S. society has for African life. Because normally the minimum sentence of that for that sort of crime is two years in prison. Okay. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Haki. Well, Brother well, brother Africa, uh, recently they just concluded the case of Toronto's corporation, which was headed by Elizabeth Holmes. It's a very interesting case in that uh, she was convicted of... Um, um, selling uh, on one count investor investor wire fraud and three counts a wire fraud with intent to defraud investors. Now, what she was selling was blood kits, which was supposedly able to um, de- discern any particular kind of illness that you may have. Just a small quantity of blood was capable of doing that. But clearly, that was very very fraudulent. And what was interesting about this very very this, this very interesting case is that while the interest of the powerful was protected, in particular the wealthy investors, the, the fraud committed against the community was not protected. Uh, interestingly enough, um, the Ronalds sold these, these products in states like California and Wisconsin. And um, in, in, in the question arises, so how did they get away with that? Why weren't they convicted of fraud against the community? A couple of reasons principally why uh, fraud against the community didn't hold. Uh, one of them is a concept called caveat emptor. And simply what it means is uh, let the buyer beware. And essentially what it says 
is that in, uh, it presupposes that you should understand, the consumer should understand that when you buy things, there is this inherent problem in terms of purchasing things that we should automatically know that and that we shouldn't be surprised in terms of when the product is defective. is the irony of ironies. And secondly, um, the reason why the, the concerns community weren't taken into consideration was that, keep in mind, when the Federal Trade Commission uh, talks about advertising, it talks about advertising being, talk about lying being permissible as it relates to uh, advertising. And so here's the thing. So when, so when, so when, Miss Holmes and her partner. So when they advertise the stated product, uh, it's not always effective in analyzing blood results. It, in essence, what, this, what that meant was that the public was the public was warned. In that context, because they were warned that the potentially that the product wouldn't work, there was no fraud committed. Now here's the here's the irony of irony. Now this, despite the, the laws in terms of the law the you know the laws intent. Uh, one of the things is very, very clear that based upon their own statements in the context of the trial, both Ms. Holmes and her co-founder, Ramesh Bawani, uh, they stated they actually substituted technologies that actually work for, for their product, claiming that the other product belonged to them. So they were very fraudulent. They understood that their product was effective, so they used other products to make it appear as though their product was affected by simply rebranding it. So that's something that we need to take into consideration. Now, in terms of the people who invested in Tyrannus, Tyrannus, you're a very, very wealthy individual. Uh, for instance, uh, Ruben Murdoch invested $125 million. Betty Voss, the former educational secretary, invested $100 million in this project. Henry Kissinger, former secretary of state, invested $3 million. Alice Walton, the Walmart hair, she invested $300 million, close to a billion dollars in investments for this project. Now, here's the thing about the African. Now, the question arises, do I give a damn about, you know, the, the wealthy people being ripped off? Hell no. They rip off people all the time. So that's not my concern. My only concern is that the bottom line is that the losses that these wealthy people uh, uh, incurred, they're going to recoup those losses. And they can recoup those losses by lower wages, more unemployment, and, um, and access to more free money from the Federal Reserve or higher stock prices irrespective of the shape of the, the business uh, shape of the corporation or the business or, or, the, or the environment overall environment of the United States. Capitalism has created a, 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 a situation where the wealthy uh, can't fail. So when we talk in context of winners and losers, we got to understand in the context of capitalism, the only winners are the 1% of the population. And we got to understand that and contemplate that very, very carefully in terms of understanding how the system or how the society is organized. Thank you, Brother Haki. Going from Brother Haki to Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, it's been a kind of a <clears throat> slow week, so far as I'm concerned. Um, um, the you know the president's still running around the country doing doing his thing. Um, um, Trump is still trying to drum up support for his overturning the elections and and uh creating a new new generation of Republicans uh so that he can come back uh in twenty four. And uh I don't know it's it's been an interesting uh uh situation. Uh I uh, I'm not sure 
if anything stands out extraordinary, uh, uh, the Russian situation, uh, the U.S. is drumming up war beats and rather saber rattling and uh, uh, determined that they, they, they um, are on a war path. And um, hopefully Putin won't, won't go for it. And, um, and we will see peace. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Going from Moses to Sister Eleanor. What's going on in your world and the community, Sister Eleanor? Well, there's been a great deal going on. You see that uh, one billion rising on February 14th, uh, the day that Frederick Douglass celebrated his birthday on uh, uh, February 14th, uh, one billion rising had events uh, focusing on uh, using the arts as a form of educating uh, the world to the issues that women and children face concerning uh, violence, uh, rape, and uh, against women and children. So that's a big activity, uh, One Billion Rising. Also, uh, as Brother Anthony said, we saw this soft, uh, sentence uh, given to the woman who used a, a gun instead of a phaser. But we also see the uh, feds have picked up the trial of um, Audrey in Georgia, and whether or not that will be seen as a human rights violation is yet to be seen. But um, I think the one billion rising is an important uh issue that folks can participate in that are interested in women's rights and we we also should focus on the issue as we did of uh sex workers and 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 drugs i think that uh all forms of uh, uh prostitution should be legalized uh, and i also think drug paraphernalia and drugs should be legalized. We would empty our prisons uh, of, of women and youth if we would simply legalize those two things. So that's that's what's going on, and I stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. They are not invisible, nor are the people of Yemeni, and I feel deeply for the women in Afghanistan who generally have their children at home with midwives having no um, basic medicines, and uh, similar to what um, uh, just what's happening in Yemen, what's happening in Afghanistan, and also I stand in solidarity, Brother Africa, uh, with the uh, Cuban people who are dealing with this decades-long barcade. This this. This, this blockade it's, it's outrageous and what uh, President Biden is threatening and while we're beating war drums we need to stand back and stand down because uh, we don't need another war and we seem to be moving from war to war no one's benefiting but uh, Lockheed Martin and, and the big old war machine so we need to stand down and the people have to rise up 
and uh, let it be known that we will not participate in another war. Thank you, Sister Noah. We now go to Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, what's going on in your world and the community? Yes, yes. Uh, as of right now, as we all know, um, uh, Africa is on fire, and Africans are are are, are in the fire, and the masses of other poor people, other people who suffer from oppression and poverty, are are on fire. But I want to focus on some. More, more more worldwide, but a couple of examples here in the United States of America. It's a war. It's an ongoing war on black history, African history, African culture, black culture, right here uh, up in the United States. Um, it was the Washington Post uh, that's highlighting some of these wars, all the um, ongoing bomb threats and HBCUs, but you, you have all going on with uh, black education or black groups. You have a you had a student group called Black and Proud. The principal had it had the name change and and uh, uh, a New Hampshire New Hampshire to to discuss on current events and a unit about race and economics. But that is that is no more. That's not that's not existent existent no more. So you have in thirteen states so directed govern how race can be taught in schools, in some cases, for complaints. And we have uh, a reporting system, a tip line for here in Virginia with our new governor, uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin, uh, who issued out a tip, a tip line for, <laughs> for, for other teachers of staff to contact if, if their child or their uh, students are being taught Anything about Black history, or anything that's 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 targeting or fighting or challenging capitalism, white supremacy, all these seeds uh, that you have under uh, capitalism, um, they have a tip line out. Along with that, also here going on in Virginia, you have uh, graffiti being found in the schools right here in Virginia, called Deep Run Hat. Count that school is 58.4 percent of white. Uh, five point. I'm sorry. It's uh 7.2 percent of the students are or black, and that's what we have going on as of right now. I just want to make this conclusion that with the bombing, bomb threats to HBCU, it seems like it's a with uh, bombing black folks or the potential of having a conversation or threat of of bombing bombing African people. As you know, the first bombing that happened in the United States was on an African community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We had the move not the move Philadelphia bombing. They love bomb bombing us and also we can't even don't even get me started on our motherland of Africa. Um the amount of drone bases that increased under a uh, what we call our first <laughs> black president, uh Barack Obama. Um but I just want to conclude that organization is very imperative into a pan-African revolutionary organization uh, in relation to the theme the night promised to write, I end with this, organize, organize, organize more than ever. It is imperative at this point because at, at this point is pan-Africanism a perish. And uh, that's what's going on in my, in my world, Brother Africa. Thank you. 
Thank you, Brother Maurice. And panelists, you know, earlier, uh, before we came on the airways, uh, we was asked uh, our panelists to, and we want to look at our listening audience if they get a chance to check out the Real News newsletter for the week of February the 18th. They had two interesting articles that dealt with the institutionalization of uh, law enforcement. Uh, they had two real interesting articles talk about the behavior of the law enforcement and how they are policing um, the so-called communities and really talk about uh, the, 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 the corruption that is running wildly throughout these departments. You know, one of the articles and link they had that with the so question behind a videotape that show where the police um police officers um put a young man in the back of the car who was um overdosed and that how they literally um uh, kill him. And then they talk about this other case which happened about a year ago in Baltimore. This case was about uh the police um Sean Sutter, where he was killed by the act of pursuing a so-called crime in the community, and many people felt like it was set up by his own uh, appeal, appeals, because he was to testify uh, the next day in one of these federal cases in which he may have been a part of. And what these cases did was to highlight how the structure is set up to encourage corruption and support this whole concept of them not being accountable. And I'd like to just hear some of y'all views and perspectives on some of the issues and concerns that came out from um, those two cases that was in The Real magazine on February the 18th. I'll start off with you. Brother Anthony, your thoughts on these cases? Yes, um, certainly. Um, I think both of those cases show uh, the extent of police corruption and how uh, police are held to a different standard of conduct than people in other occupations. Uh, They serve as the... uh, security guards for the for the ruling uh for the ruling bourgeoisie and as such uh their uh their level of power is a lot greater than in any other occupation and uh they get a uh, they get away with a lot more in a way, uh, in a way of uh, protecting ruling class interests, and that's why they get away with so much uh, terrorism and crime against the uh, uh, against the African and indigenous communities, because their role is to protect the ruling class from the masses of the people in these communities. And that's why they get away with so much in the way of uh, torture and corruption. Uh, And uh, the 
uh, the policeman that got in trouble for leaking that video was himself a policeman, but he was uh, he was uh, isolated and denied protection from the policeman union because he revealed what was actually going on in the police department. And uh, and uh, Souter, uh, the Baltimore policeman, was scheduled to render testimony in a corruption trial involving his co-workers in Baltimore. And uh, so, uh, uh, let's see, the police would, would resort to anything uh, to protect uh, their profession, including sacrificing their own, in order to uh, in order to maintain uh, the blue wall of silence that is called. In other words, policemen aren't supposed to uh, rat on each other, regardless of how serious the crimes that, that that they commit against the community are. Thank you, Brother Afton. Brother Haki, your take on these cases concerning the behavior of law enforcement within the United States. You know, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things we have to be very, very clear on is that a lot of these cops come to these decisions with the same biases the overall population of society has. In fact, uh, those cops who have that kind of um, tendency toward uh, racism or to view racism favorably are more likely to be hired by cops simply because these kind of individuals have a show a great deal of deference toward the system at large. In other words, their position is very, very clear that anything that, quote, unquote, uh, uh, is in opposition to the system is, in fact, a fundamental threat. And so, therefore, nobody should be surprised when you when you hire large groups of people with that kind of mindset that they're going to victimize those people they perceive as a fundamental threat to the system. And clearly, when you talk about the oppression of African people in America, then clearly, I don't think anybody would be surprised when I say, you know, that the uh, you know the quintessential enemy in, in in the context of American society has always been African people. And so, therefore, so when we talk about a situation where these cops actually you know, knowing this guy needs medical care, but intentionally leave him there so he can die, they understood that not only was their action sanctioned, but they understand also that they could get away with it simply in terms of, in terms of you know, rules and regulations as, as they present themselves in the police department. One of the things is that what is priority in terms of police department is, 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 is productivity. So in other words, you want to demonstrate just how well you're doing in terms of police in the community, and the way you do that is with statistics. And so, therefore, if you have the, uh, the quote-unquote alleged perpetrator, you know, in captivity, then there is no hurry in terms of getting to the to the hospital. What the priority is to make the documentation that you got a potential perp, you know, uh, in the, in custody. And so, therefore, from a systematic point of view, the people in positions of power understand fundamentally that you know such policies are. Uh, uh, empower cops to actually create scenarios in which people needlessly die uh, simply because those positions of power will see that serving the interests of the system at large. Now, with respect to the Baltimore Undercover Cops of other Africa, what can I say? Um, uh, cops and corruption go hand in hand. I mean, that's not a, that's not a, 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 that's not hyperbole by any stretch of the imagination. 
that is a reality. And so we, we can look at throughout the country, we can see cases in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, corruption. Uh, when we talk about in Baltimore, we're talking about the undercover cop being killed. Nobody would be surprised. The moment that he decided uh, that he was going to, in fact, uh, reveal the underside or the dirty side of Baltimore policing did his days from number. And that's very, very clear. Uh, one of the things, though, is just, just to highlight Brother Africa in terms of this propensity, in terms of, you know, this this this, this corruption and this this, 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 this kind of dirt uh, that is so much part of policing in the United States. I want people to, to draw in mind, a, a, to keep in mind, a, I'm going to raise a couple of things where people should, should, should contemplate very, very carefully. The first is a case involving Larry Davis, or the former Larry Davis. He changed his name to Adam Abdul Hakim. Uh, this was a brother in the Bronx, New York, right? And he was a drug dealer. It was alleged his brother bringing in a million dollars, a million dollars a day. Now, this was possible because this brother was provided rocket lunches by the New York Police Department. Of course, once the scheme was, once the scheme was um, uh, devoured, uh, those cops who were responsible for doing that did not get any jail time. They continued to work. They were, they, a couple of them actually resigned, but there was no punitive punishment in terms of jail time for what they did. So when you think in terms of a rocket launcher being provided to someone, and certainly you can understand why he controlled vast areas of land for selling drugs, because who's going to challenge a rocket launcher, uh, technology capable of taking out a whole city block? Uh, so clearly this is just part and parcel in terms of how these cops operate. Also, um, Nicky Bonds, for those who go way back in terms of, you know, his proclivity in terms of drug dealing, uh, Nicky Bonds are only successful to the extent he had a relationship with, with cops. If you ask any, any drug dealer in, in any, anywhere in the world, anywhere in this country, you ask any drug dealer, can they operate without the uh, assistance of police department? They will tell you absolutely not. You will not understand, Brother Africa. We can go anywhere in this country and take us about half an hour to find out where the drugs are. You can drop us off anywhere in this country and take us a fifth, about half an hour to find out where the drugs are. This notion that somehow the cops don't know who the drug dealers are, where the drugs are coming from, is nefarious. Uh, so clearly it just underscores the kind of corruption that is a part and parcel, you know, of the, um, uh, how police operate in America. But more importantly, Brother Africa, when we, when we talk about distribution of drugs and dirty, dirty uh, operations uh, being employed by cops, we've got to keep in mind this, this serves a much broader purpose. In particular, when we talk about, you know, the dissemination of drugs in the African Union, uh, we're hopping back to the Iran-Contra affair. Remember that when, when the U.S. Uh, uh, took, the, when the US, uh, took the guns, uh, sold, sold the guns, sold the weapons to, 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 um, to, 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 to Iran. Iran then sold the, uh, the money went, went to the Contras. The Contras then provided the U.S. with, with, with drugs. The drugs were sold, disseminated, you know, in the African community specifically. And we know by the case of Freeway Wicked Ross in terms of how he distributed, how he played a role working with the government, the CIA specifically, in terms of disseminating drugs in the African community. So all of this goes hand in hand. So when we talk about, you know, the, the, the propensity for cops to engage in crooked behavior, and we talk about dissemination of drugs, the two things go hand in hand. And so they all, as Brother Anthony alluded to, they all serve one interest, and that is to support the interests of the ruling class, pure and simple. And so for us to understand that fundamentally in terms of the corruption that exists in society, the only way we're going to circumvent it or prevent this from happening to us, we have to become extremely organized. We have to. If not, then we suffer the consequences. It's that simple, Brother Africa, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Talk to me, Sister Eleanor. What was phenomenal was uh, Mr. Laurie, the officer seemed to know that he had fentanyl 
but they waited one minute and 38 seconds before they even, uh, after he uh, uh, had been placed in the car and he received no medical attention and they didn't make any effort to give him uh, the shots that they carry that can help uh, uh, revive someone on the spot or to call the uh, an ambulance or anything. And the officer that was the whistleblower is the one facing all the time, as, as the previous analyst had said. The other thing is the uh, other article, uh, Sean Souter, and he was about to testify against the Baltimore Police Department and its decades-long corruption against black people. And he was found shot in the back of his head uh, with his own gun. Uh, There was a brief transmission moments before uh, apparently the shooting, but it was inaudible. So this seems to be uh, a practice. Uh, by the Baltimore Police Department, and uh, uh, it's an example of the the need to overhaul uh, the uh, police departments and retrain uh, folks uh, right off the bat. Uh, The the missing evidence that made uh, makes uh, Detective Sean Souter's death even more mysterious is also up to question in in the transcripts. So uh, both articles are, are very re- revealing, and it shows how little life means, black lives mean, and. Uh, and and it's right here at home, people being murdered every day by the police. Thank you, Sister Elnora. Brother Maurice, talk to me. Yes, man. Uh, that that video with the brothers very. Uh, it was another gruesome, traumatic. Every time uh, we watch these videos and see these footages of us, man, getting treated like worse than roadkill, worse than deer that they hunt for a sport is is, is quite sickening, and it, and, it, and, and it explains to the trauma of epigenetics that we are dealing with, man, passing it down from generation to generation of the horse. I just want to connect something real quick um, to, 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 to something else. Now, with the CIA, now, CIA, the department, to these police department or to the FBI, however you want to frame it, right? They all relate it. They all represent the state of this government, of this system, the United States government. But they had, you don't really, you always hear about uh, J. Edgar Hoover, right? <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover. But you you rarely don't really hear about this uh, scientist, if you will, who worked in the CIA by the name of Sidney Gottlieb. And uh, or got leave. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Sidney Gottlieb. It's important that uh, we understand his name and understand who this individual is. His last name is spelled G O T T L I E B. I urge listeners and or, or you know whoever is not 
familiar with this gentleman. He's not even a gentleman. He's just a hound. He's 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 illness. He's a sick individual who works with the CIA. Now this Sidney Glenn was behind the operation of of, of, of developing truth serum, if you will, and 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 administering LSD to be thrown on a a a uh, a media. Um, I'm sorry, a media. A media, uh, I'm sorry, a media building or or or, or radio system out in, in Cuba. He also is the, I'm sorry, it was a TV station. He was trying to spray spray the TV station in Cuba with LSD. He's also the guy that's behind this uh, making because you know Fidel Castro was alleged he loved scuba diving. He was the the guy that was trying to um, develop a scuba a scuba as to be uh, distributed or to be presented to, 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 to Fidel Castro as a gift to eventually kill him and suffocate him. Last but not least, he is the same guy that uh, manipulated his toothpaste poison to kill Patrice uh, Emery Lumumba. Now, I say all this to say that, that th- I say all this to say that these people know what they're doing. And when I look at this video of him, of, of these police officers, Holding this guy's nose. How you? They 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 killing him. They talk. They holding this guy. This brother knows. I'm gonna open your mouth. Open your mouth. How the hell he gonna open his mouth? Hey, you killing him. He can't breathe. You you got his nose clipped. Then you take a baton, and you gonna stick a baton in his mouth. It remind me of a scene from slavery or a movie. I, of course, I didn't. I wasn't there. Nobody was there then. The slave and 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 uh, slavery dealing with lynch because we still enslaved, right? But I'm talking about what you see on the plantation, how they pricked and prodding this guy with their baton in his mouth looking for drugs. This man is dying, and they got his nose clipped. It's, 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 just, it's, Ill, it's illness. And this guy and the CIA and, and, and all these organiza- all these uh, state represented organizations, they, they represent the same MO. They don't give a damn about uh, the masses of people, specifically uh African people, they don't give a damn about poor European people here. They don't give a damn about you if you're listening. They really don't. And it's imperative, like I stated at the out the beginning of the show, and as all of the panelists, um you know, Brother Anthony, all words of Kwame Teray, you have to organize more than ever. And as for scientists at this point, because you look at you look at the CIA, you look at the FBI, they organize. Oh man, they organized teeth and nails. It's not just about having police officers with guns. They got scientists in the in the lab manipulating stuff, trying stuff, coming up with stuff. They have their technicians, they have their their architects, they have everybody in on there what they're trying to do to keep themselves in power. Now I urge us, we have to do that as but poor people, we have to do that. Do that, especially African people. Because Africans uh, in Africa, such a hell as we we stayed over and stayed over and over on this show. It's kept they're catching hell. Our people are catching hell. So we we have to organize more than ever. If if not, you're going to keep seeing footages of be, of brothers and sisters and kids being pricked and prodded and killed and murdered, just like the the young. The young uh, eight-year-old sister Fanta Billity, who was killed and murdered uh, in Sharon Hill, you're gonna keep seeing this. You're gonna keep seeing this over and over. It's not going to end. They're gonna kill you when you sleep underneath your blanket. Walk. To, they got a key to your apartment. Walk in your house. 
this, this is what it is, man. It's, it's on a daily basis at this point, so we we have to organize more than ever. That's that's my that's my contribution to that to that to this portion. Thank you, brother Maurice. Brother Moses, talk to us. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking about um I, I missed something on on current events um the there was a brother um and a and an Anglo brother and, and an African brother uh, duking it out and someplace as caught on video and uh, the the Anglo hit 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 started it evidently with a strike and a blow to the head or something and uh and uh, um, the police came rushing in while they were scuffling and, and separated the two of them. But the the Anglo brother was allowed to sit down and watch as the the, the two police um, turned their attention to the the the, the, the brother and uh, handcuffed him and you know was pinning them to the ground with their knees on him and all that crap. And uh, it's just interesting uh, that uh, white skin privilege allow him to to be the good guy automatically, uh, 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 and that who need to be constrained was the the African brother. This is very interesting. Uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Yeah, I think it was in the state of Maryland at a um that video clip you talking about at a mall, Brother Moses. Um yeah, the the European mayor started picking at the African who was a smaller brother by in stature. And the video clearly showed that he, he um started everything. But as usual when 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 the cops came in, they totally went to uh, denigrate the African brother by uh, handcuffing him and making it look like he really was, you know, uh, did something real real criminal in the public eyes. And uh, clearly it's just another indication of the imbalance between the so-called justice that for that 400 years African people had to have to deal with. But in terms of looking at these articles that was in the real news, February 18, panelists. I'd like to get y'all respond to this, and then we'll move on. And I think one point that the uh, writer made at the beginning, which I think is very crucial in terms of trying understanding our situation and knowing who the enemy and how it operates, uh, she stated that it's important for us to understand how things are structurally uh, uh, organized, how laws are put in place. To encourage and allow, and, and to allow this kind of behavior, more so than that to anything. Now, in these cases, one of the points that came out that was earlier uh, 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 interest was earlier where they alluded to not only were they covering things up in the, in the, in the police uh, operation in the offices in the offices that they functioned out of, but also you had the media in cahoots and the politicians, the prosecutors and other politicians, they all were aware of it and were in cahoots in it. So we have a system that is, and I say system, that is structurally um, organized in a manner to to allow these to take place while at the same time to protect that. 
what do you say to the realities of those individuals, the African people who want to change the system in the context of not just looking at the individual perpetrators who really commit the act? Start out with you, Brother Hackey. It could be your take on, on that phenomenon. Uh, brother, well, first of all, um, the the case of Brother Moses was referring to happened in New Jersey. I'm New Jersey, actually. It was in a mall in New Jersey. Uh, now, okay. to, to your question, uh, to your question, uh, you know the structural the structural nature of oppression. It is true. Uh, you know, you you ask the question, what can we do in terms of impact on those who believe that, in fact, the situation that we're confronted with is is, is somewhat. Um, uh, 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 somewhat um, non-threatening in the, in the context that, you know, any kind of situation we're confronted with, we can always vote or we always can uh, appeal to more authorities in terms of bringing about change. Uh, the, the problem is the problem with that kind of thinking is that it, it it'll miss the fact that when we talk about these kind of abuses of on African people, it's structural. In other words, when you say it's structural, what you're saying is planned that way. It's designed to be that way. And one of the things when when you talk about the role that lawmakers play in terms of you know uh, facilitating these injustices, uh, this is a very valid point. Uh, one of the things that if you really want to put it in the post brutality, all it takes is swipe by the pen to put it bring it to an end. Or or simply uh, for those police chiefs around the country who allow their troops to engage in uh, discriminatory policing, you know bringing them out on charges would dissuade that kind of that kind of that kind of a that kind of thing from going on. But of course, people in position of power don't want that to happen. They want the cops to feel truly empowered because their whole thing is, you know, is that, you know, because the 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 police represent the stormtroopers assault, you know, for the ruling class, they want them to have unfeathered ability in terms of inflicting the maximum damage on those people they perceive, quote unquote, as the enemy. So clearly, this is structural, and 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 I don't, I don't know if you can convince people, um, you know, the structural aspect in terms of, in terms of policing, because a lot of people want to believe, you know, that when you talk about structural, they talk about well, you know, um, you 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 you're saying that a constitution doesn't exist. I'm not saying that at all. The constitution, in fact, does does exist, but the interpretation of the constitution allows for these injustices to continue. And unless you're going to confront these injustices straight on in terms of, you know, uh, deliberation when it comes to law, then there's no conceivable way possible to affect or bring about a change that is so desperately needed in terms of the kind of uh, uh, male uh, abuse, the kind of abuse being subjected, afflicted upon African people in the society. So clearly, Brother Africa, I think the structural dimension is very important. I think, um, you know, but also one final thing in terms of the structural aspect. I, I think that, you know, one of the things, you know, earlier I alluded to the fact that when, that when you talk about um, being productive, uh, the question arises when in the context of being a cop, what is it to be productive? Well, if you work in a factory, product, productivity is, 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 is uh, characterized based upon how much you produce or how many packages you send through the machine per, you know, per minute or so forth and so on. When the context of cops is a little bit different, so productivity is not – Assess in terms of anything you 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 do in terms of units. It's it's more in terms of the kind of the the the, the frequency of the paperwork. So if you can create if you can if you can create a situation where you arresting large number of people, the paperwork reflects that reality. So in the context of the police officer, that is productivity. 
So in such a context, then one of the things is that if you want to be effective and you want to move up in a police organization, how do you do that? You get a reputation, a reputation for locking people up. And so, and that's when the, the, the discriminatory aspect of policy comes into play. Because if you're going to destroy people's lives in terms of locking them up, then clearly we talk about, you know, life lacking value. No one lacks, no one lives uh, uh, has less value than African people. And so, therefore, you can routinely, rudimentally, you know, uh, you know, arrest African people for all kinds of things, uh, get them incarcerated, get them locked up, destroy their lives because their lives are inconsequential. Our lives are not important. So having an understanding, that structural understanding in terms of the system, in terms of how it operates, then if we don't start thinking structurally, then we can't change this. We have to think structurally. Again, and this is important to be grasp this, when you talk about, you can't talk about structure without talking about strategy and tactics. So whatever the cops do, we have to intelligently counter whatever it is that they do. That's how we discourage them. That's how we dissuade them from engaging in discriminatory policing. If we don't do that, then not only do they have the Constitution behind to hide, to hide behind in terms of legitimacy of their, their barbarity, but also just from a structural point of view, they're actually doing what those positions, people in positions of power want them to do. And so from that context, they're receiving this, 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 this impetus to say that, you know, destroying, killing African lives is not important. Keep doing what you're doing, boys. It's a good thing. So against that background, we got to be foolish to think that you know that somehow, or you know that you know that we're going to appeal to some moral conscience of people in positions of power, and somehow they're going to come to our aid. It seems to me, brother Africa, after 400 years in this country, that it seems to me that it should be a it should be a no brainer. It shouldn't be even discussion to be had. We should fundamentally understand this is the reality structurally, and there should be no discussion. But people still in the 21st century still believe that in fact, if we just appeal to quote unquote moral authorities, everything's going to be all right despite the, the useless killings uh, that continue to pervade the African community by, at the hands of cops. So clearly, Brother Africa, she has a very good point. The structural dimensions is something that, you know, we have to begin to recognize because if we don't understand the structural dimensions, we'll never be able to organize, to create, to innovate those kind of institutions, those kind of organizations that truly combat the issues, particularly when it comes to police brutality in the, in the African community. Thank you, Brother Hockey. Brother Anthony, clearly when you're talking about the necessity for organization, it shows that they are very organized. It's one of the things I alluded to earlier from these articles, that our people must have something to think about, give our people something to think about, is that they even concluded that the press were in with it. You have your computers in with it, and you have your politicians. So where we go from there, Brother Anthony, doing no realities. Uh, we have to organize as a people. We have to recognize that our oppression is systemic. It is not. Uh, it is not due to the fault of any uh, of this or that other individual. Our oppression is systemic, as Brother Haki uh, correctly alluded to. And uh, and the only way we can uh, uh, attack our oppression in a systemic fashion is through permanent mass organization. We have to get organized as a people. Voting is a start, but it is not sufficient because it comes into question is, who do you give your vote to? 
and uh, and uh, we have to take a more scientific and strategic approach than that. We have to form our own independent political organizations so that the people that we elect represent our interests and not the interests of the ruling class. And uh, we have to get better organized than we have been. Or organization is the key when you're facing systemic oppression. And this is a system. That's why the police behave in a similar fashion, regardless of what urban area of the U.S. you're talking about. Uh, because it's a system. It doesn't matter what individuals you plug into that system. And uh, we will only defeat the system through permanent mass political organization. That's the highest level of organization that you can have, and that's what we need more than ever today. That's in essence my point. We need permanent mass organization. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother Anthony. Um, one of the things I want to do is direct this question to Sister um, Eleanor and Brother Maurice. You know, one of the things that came out from these articles in the, in the, in the new. Re- the new real newspaper in the real news news newspaper on February 18. They gave an example, and I think it was the local Canada area in, in the state of Maryland, where African police chief were hired to come into this small county, no more than about 2,500 people, and he took a different approach to policing in community. One of the things he did was he made policies, different policies that he thought would be in the best interest of the community. Now, one of the things he did was he made uh, police officers to, to do more walking on the beat than riding the cars. He also encouraged to try to help the youth in the community to help those who at least had the potential to go to college instead of so much trying to find ways of locking them up and giving them for a little petty theft or petty use of drugs. But anyway, he'd done a lot of practical things that was in the interest of trying to heal and help the community. But later on, he found himself um, being um, fired and being set up or being accused of committing certain crimes or acts just because he refused to um, he refused to go along with the program or just go along with this concept of mass conservation. What do we take from that that particular um, story, Sister Illinois, and that kind of uh, behavior? Well, uh, it's the same as we saw here with uh, Ms. Delory, who uh, died in Illinois and the incident in Baltimore. There seems to be a militarization of the police going on that's happening, you know, uh, since the Iraqi war. These veterans have come back, and uh, they're getting ready to retire, and they're training others. And we had our first urban war 
in Iraq, and it set us up for the conditions at home. And there seems to be, um, Brother Africa, an intent, a uh, community intent, as well as the uh, the police machine of uh, militarizing the police as uh, Brother Aki and uh, Brother Moses mentioned the guy, the the kid in New Jersey. There was a 17-year-old white boy told to sit on the couch, while a 14-year-old child is handcuffed with the police officer's knee on his neck. So this seems to be a national crisis, and I think it's the militarization of the police. And that officer down in Maryland that decided to uh, deal with community policing and involvement is not the norm. That's not what we see as a national standard right now. We see the one minute, 38 seconds. We see a guy with a baggie down his throat in Illinois, and no one bothers to call an ambulance. We see him overdose then and there, and no one knows what he's overdosing over. No one tries to get any help at all. And the officer, as you saw in that instance, that was supposedly to train officers, and when he became a whistleblower, he faces being a felon himself because the 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 fight right now is to stop the militarization of the police department and to change uh, the American attitude of policing. We have, to, we have to educate the people to not uh, think that having a military-style police with military weapons, military equipment on our streets are acceptable. It's not. It's not. It's not what we need. It's not what will... Um, help our children and help our community. We, we saw it in, in New Jersey. We see it in these two articles right here. Uh, uh, what happened in Illinois, what happened to the officer later. We'll discuss what happened to the officer in Baltimore when he was going to testify and bring this to the attention of uh, superiors above the local police department. So it, it's a it's a struggle, and the fight is on, and we will not be defeated. The people Brother will Maurice, not be defeated. Brother Maurice, your response is question: When you find people come into these offices and want to change the nature of their behavior and become more responsive to the community, they even view them as being enemy uh, to the police agency, what do you make of how they dealt with this police chief who had all good intentions and he found himself up on the end, on the outside, and you at the enemy? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised, you know. Um, you know, for example, uh, like when you look at, we talk about Baltimore, when you look at uh, Marilyn Mosby, um, you know, she was a representative of, of of that of the state, you know, she was a um, she was this uh, I'm sorry, the state uh, prosecutor, or I'm sorry, the state attorney for uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and when she uh, 
when she was trying to uh, align herself on the on the side of of, of justice by um, uh, indicting, I feel like she, I think she was involved where she led an indictment on corrupt police officers or challenged the police department. You see that they, all of a sudden you start hearing about her, you know, buying homes in Florida, illegally buying homes in, in Florida, and they, you know, they uh, manipulating uh, manipulating against her, like how she was, they were saying that she was using uh, COVID relief funds and lied about mortgage applications to purchase those two homes in Florida, I guess she figured out right, right. I, I guess she figured out <laughs> that, you know, do you, you might, you might be a, a, uh, the top prosecutor in Baltimore or, or what have you. But at the end of the day, when you come against, uh, the police officers, when you like, like, uh, bro, uh, brother Anthony stated earlier, that blue wall, you're going to learn quick on who you, who, who are you at. So I'm, I'm not I'm not surprised that that police chief was handled like like that police chief was was handled. Um, this the, you know th- this is uh, test. This is not Texas as we heard over and over again with these police departments. They they move police uh, chiefs out when it gets fired when it gets hot in Ferguson. They move that police chief out. And from my understanding, uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, they brought in a African police chief. You quell the masses. That's this is what they did here in Richmond, Virginia, in 2020, when uh, the masses here were, was calling for some accountability within the uh, within the uh, within the not like it was Peters, but some other cases some some for some justices here um, from from the uh, from from Richmond City government, they got rid of uh, one police chief, the white police chief. Then they brought in a black police chief. They didn't, then they had to get rid of him because he had history by uh, uh, killing um, uh, African youth, black uh, black youth. And they brought in another police officer. This is what they do. They, they, they it's a game. It's an ongoing game, like what we see in Minnesota. With the police officer came in there and killed the brother when he was sleeping underneath his, his cover. When that fire gets on that, when the fire got on that police chief, she had to. She ran out the damn excuse my language. He ran out the press conference, right? Um, this this is what they they do, man. They take us as a as a, as a joke, and I, I and, and you know they take us as a joke because they know they 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 expect they know they know what they're gonna expect on from us, you know, protest. Uh, the same old type of tactics like uh, Brother Hackey spoke about earlier, you know, your protests or you have some couple of rebellions here and there and eventually you quell down and, you know, and we go back, well, not we as in us, but they can go back to business as usual. And then you see these same reoccurrences happen over and over again. So it's just, it's just business as usual. And, and, uh, to echo one of the panelists who stated, I don't, you would think by this day and age, man, appealing to the more, the morality, if you will, of, of the people in these positions, you would think we'd be long gone with that, with that tactic. You know, I mean, how much appealing can you do? Uh, it's like the more you appeal, we appeal to, to these people, morality, attempted, whatever morality they, they <laughs> we think they the gas pedal and, and, and speed it up more. You you know, from throwing a brother, the young brother on the floor, putting his knee on the on the back and setting the white the other the white teenager down, patting him on the shoulder, you okay, while you getting this treatment from 
the African teenagers. The same on top of you got that going on, bomb threats on HBCUs. You got all this going on with, with Africa, the same old. You got, uh, there was an article in, 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 in the Richard Times Respect was saying that, okay, you got the militaries in Africa, they getting more power, more weapons from the United States government, while the government, democracies decay. That is done purposely, if you understand neocolonialism. So this is what, what, what we're up against, man. All, all of these, once we understand that all of these problems are connected, and all our problems worldwide, whether you're in Haiti, Cuba, uh, on a, on a continent, in Brazil, Mexico, wherever you are on this on this on this planet, all of these issues of oppression is connected, and it all stems from uh, people want to keep in power with the labor, the same uranium that is that is that is dug up in the mines by the masses in Africa, then it's transformed into aluminum and the Reynolds factory by the masses here. It's the same hell we catching wage light labor oppression. It's the same thing, same game going on all the time until we really understand and sit down and read uh, people who already because the, 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 the what you call a blueprint or what you call this you get the right ideology and philosophy right. If you, if you have a if you have a belief system that humanism. Um, humans come first, people over profit. Therefore, your ideology should be, you know, egalitarianism, um, humanism, and your and your love for if you're of African heritage, you should adopt these um, ideologies of um, of 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 chromism, terrorism. These the these 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 the ideologies and the philosophies that's going to get us free. Um, this, this is going to give us free, man. This is this is this is this is where we at right now. Okay, so and we I, and I, transition I, to. Let's go, brother Mari. Finish your point. Oh no, I was just going to say, and you know, we coming up on a, another anniversary of February twenty first, the assassination of Malcolm X. Who we seen? They got uh, they got a lot of documentaries out there to show you that the CIA and the FBI and the NYPD, the New York Police Department, had a hand in in, in assassinated one of our great leaders. So, uh, and he was speaking the same thing that we're talking right here tonight. So I agree with that, brother. Thank you, brother Maurice, brother Moses, and the final thoughts. But we make our transition to our theme today which is Kwame Ture and liberation. You know, many times, um, sometimes we need to review and reflect history, and we want to use this time today. But we felt like from this presentation in 1995, Brother Ture raised some fundamental issues that exist then, and I think they clearly exist today. We would like to go back and reflect on that. But before we do that, Brother Moses, are there any things that you'd like to add to this present conversation on policing in diverse communities. Yeah, um, yeah, let me say, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but um, Frederick Engels' Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State is relevant, and then there's V.I. Lennon's The State and Revolution. Um, we have to understand what the state is and what's, what is necessary in terms of revolution and uh, 
because, you know, we're talking about millions of people deciding that they're no longer going to live the same way. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, doing something about it in an organized fashion. And, uh, you know, it, it does take organization and, um, and, um, and, you know, morality appeals to, appeals to the individual, uh, um, to uh, the per, per uh, individual people, uh, in terms of the mass of mass of the people, uh, um, um, it's very difficult to to use morality in terms of the state and government. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, uh, um, it's the ethic, uh, professional ethics, etc. But yeah, um, let me just leave it right there. Thank you. All right, thank you, Brother Moses. Right now, to listen audience, we're gonna make our transition to our theme tonight: Kwame Radio and Liberation. We're going to play a clipping from YouTube, and where he gave a presentation on the AAPIP in, in the year 1995. What does he raise so many critical points we'd like to revisit tonight, particularly as we continue to reflect our historical history and contributions that African people have made to humanity during this month of February? So we're going to listen to this when we come back. Panelists, I'd like to have your response to this first part of a two-part series of Kwame Ray and Liberation. Let's go to this footage. Whether the Democratic Party and electoral politics cannot solve our problems, at least until we are organized. So even if we were inside the Democratic Party, our functioning uh, stalwarts in that party have a responsibility to at least organize the masses of our people. Because you cannot tell me that Kennedy and a sharecropper from Mississippi are in the same party with the same power because they got one vote each. That makes no sense at all. Um, I'm reminded that I should probably mention names when I, when I say things like former colleagues. I'm talking about people like John Lewis, who was also a former chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, is now a member of Congress from the state of Georgia. Talking about John Wilson, who is the chairman of the District of Columbia City Council, another organizer for SNCC. Do you still maintain contact with your colleagues? Do you ever get a chance to see them? Uh, once in a while, if our paths cross, but uh, I'm still doing the same thing they used to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm better at it. <laughs> but you are known to not make your political differences personal. When you, when you run into to, to old friends, many of whom have chosen electoral politics, a few have chosen, like H. Rab Brown, religion mm -hmm. as the major vehicle for expressing their consciousness, you still have cordial relations. Of course, you know, uh, there's no need to be antagonistic. Uh, me, I never get mad unless I'm about to kill, and I don't get mad at anyone except someone who's truly exploiting my people, and for them, there's no, no problem here. Let's go back to the telephone. Call with you. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good evening, Kojo and Kwame Toure. Uh, during the Persian Gulf War, why has the news media conveniently overlooked the fact that one million Palestinians are under house arrest in the occupied territories in Israel? Now, well, obviously, some media isn't overlooking it. Everybody who's watching this just heard it. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, press in America, of course, is controlled by uh, Zionism. That's clear. And uh, this book, uh, this is not a statement I make. There's a book by a Jewish man. 
And uh, let me I think of the title of the book as we go along. And he's written the book. He's anti-Zionist because there are Jews who are anti-Zionist. And for the man who called before and said he couldn't understand, I would suggest that he read uh, Lenny Brenner's book, uh, any of Lenny Brenner's book, who is a Jew who is anti-Zionist. And uh, this man who is, I think... Uh, he's even went on this show when my name is... The name just gone. Lenny Brenner. I'm sorry. Okay. Lenny, Lenny Brenner. Brenner. Okay. And uh, the the other book I will think about it as we go along. I'll give it to him. But, okay. Uh, the reason why is because uh, the Zionist controls the press. They control the press and they uh, don't let any information out that what they consider will make the people sympathetic to the cause of the Palestinians. Saddam Hussein has called for linkage to his withdrawal from Kuwait to a. Israeli withdrawal from the occupied territories. Do you think that is valid? He's absolutely correct. This again is another hypocrisy of America. Here they, they are next to the land, they are occupying the land, and you talk that you're coming against annexation and you leave them there? Why? You know, George Bush, he talks like he's bad, like he's a CIA agent, but he's afraid of Israel. When they say jump, he says, how high? <laughs> <laughs> you have mentioned that the United States in this war is on the wrong side. You have said they should have let Saddam Hussein keep Kuwait. But you must know that the American people have been hearing all kinds of things about Saddam Hussein, including the chemical warfare used against the Kurdish people in Iraq at the time, and it is felt that Saddam Hussein should not be associated with the cause of righteousness. How do you feel about that? America cannot be the judge of moral righteousness for anybody. Uh, don't you know the French have something they call for discussion. That's a, a discussion that, that has no sense at all. If you're not careful, they will bring problems to you which are not yours, for you be discussing these problems that have no relevance at all. America cannot be moral judge of anyone. So anytime America speaks of morality, why pay attention? It's like if a thief is coming to give you lessons on how not to thief. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the telephone. Caller, it's your turn. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, I honor you, Kwame uh, Ture. There's a question I would like to ask. I don't know if you could show some light on it. I understand that a few presidents now, uh, including Ben Casey, has go and also Mr. Bush, has got a bank set up in Panama and are still sending all of the materials to South Africa that is supposed to be cut off at the moment. Could you throw some light on that, if you're familiar with it? That they're violating the sanctions. I'm sorry I'm not uh, familiar with these facts, but uh, that's nothing new. I mean, I, I, there's nothing that America can do in relationship to holding up racist and dictatorial regimes throughout the world that should surprise anyone. Not, nothing at all, especially when it comes to a Zania, South Africa. First, America is racist. She's capitalist. A racist capitalist system will do everything possible to maintain the predominance of a racist settler colonial system. You mentioned that this money that is being used to assist Israel should be brought back home and used to assist the homeless. When you left this country more than 20 years ago to reside in West Africa, the homeless population of this country was minuscule compared to what it is today. Is that something that strikes you every time you step off a plane in Miami, New York, or whenever you return to this country, the vast difference in that situation? There's no question. Anyone who spends any time out of America, any time you come back, you can see the rapid decline. You know, it's just a scientific phenomenon that as the body rolls downward, it picks up mass and volume and momentum and speed, etc., etc. So that there's no question you can see the decline coming more and more. I have always been against American imperialism. As a matter of fact, when people ask me my position on the war in the Gulf, I tell them that if I were the imam of Mecca and American imperialism was fighting the devil, as Africa is my mother, I would be Satan's comrade in arms. Anywhere America is, I'm against it. But if you would have told me in the 1960s that America would decline to the position she is now, I myself would not have believed it. 
So it's this declination, this decline, which makes it clear America's on the way down, she can be destroyed, and she will be destroyed. A recent survey conducted by the University of Chicago found that in spite of the fact that we mentioned earlier that blacks have died disproportionately in armed service to this country, that a majority of white Americans believe that blacks are less patriotic than they are. They cannot believe that. Nobody loves America like these stupid Africans. <laughs> they cannot believe that. Come on. They say that, and they, I think they're talking. No, they can't believe that. My, my brother, if you go out there and even try and tell them to go to the war, they want to fight you. Nobody loves America like these Africans here. They say, well, we ain't got no other home. What's Africa? I ain't got nothing to do with Africa. I don't know. All they know is America. All they know is America. They've let America just tie them in. Why, they love everything about America. Well, this, this white man, so he knows better. However, they are often critical of America's domestic policies. They're critical of the impoverishment and unemployment they see in the black community. And it is my own belief that many whites interpret that as somehow being unpatriotic. It's not the kind of love it or leave it kind of, of rhetoric that they would expect to, coming, to be coming from people who are patriotic. How do you mesh this criticism of America's internal policies with what you describe as an enthusiasm for America, especially in its external adventures? This is the contradiction that we face as a people that we love America more than any other people in America, and we are more abused by America than any other people in America. This is the contradiction, and this contradiction has been coming more and more. In the Vietnam War, some of it came out, but in this war, all of it will come out. And this is a war without, this war is going to be no hands drawn, you know. Bush is going to do everything as head of the CIA. He will even plant explosives throughout the country and say the terrorists are doing it to scare the people and make them go into the job. You know, that's an old Zionist trick, and you know, at least he can learn from most of that if he can. You think it's going to be a long war? Well, one thing is clear. With the sand going on and the storm coming up and the hot pressure getting hot, this war is going to be a long war. And Saddam Hussein said he prepared for a long war. America prepared for a short war, but he prepared for a long war. Let's go back to the telephone. Caller, it's your turn. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good evening, Mr. Kwame Torre. Uh, I have two brief questions. Um, do you believe that Malcolm X was right in saying that we should live apart from the white man? And could you shed some light on, I don't, I don't celebrate the 4th of July, okay? Could you shed some light on that situation? Because I have a friend, and I'm trying to explain it to you, but your eyes can see further than mine, and could you please help me out? All right, let me take your last question first. On the 4th of July, my brother, I would suggest that you go and get a speech by Frederick Douglass, which he made on the 4th of July. And uh, just read that speech, let your brother, because it won't be me, it'll be Frederick Douglass, you know, and he not like me, you know, he was good, <laughs> he wanted to be a bastard of America. <laughs> I could never do that, <laughs> you know. So he's a good, you let him read that speech by uh, Frederick Douglass on what the 4th of July means to the uh, Africans in America. And then uh, your first question, which was, um, is that how you do it? Malcolm X. Malcolm, Malcolm X. X, yes. Um, yes, Ma you must be careful now. You know, Malcolm X was very, very, very sharp. Malcolm was very sharp. I remember that uh, a policeman had killed someone in New York uh, when Malcolm was head to just form the uh, Organization of African-American Unity. And uh, when he just formed this organization, his, leaflet, his uh, people began to leaflet, and they put out that a policeman had murdered someone. And Malcolm, they called Malcolm in uh, Africa and told Malcolm. Malcolm said, no, take out the word uh, murdered. It's a legal term. Put the word killed. <laughs> and Malcolm, they put the word killed. The NAACP and the Congress Racial Quality kept the word murder in. And when the cop got off, he sued SNCC, he sued CORE, and he sued the NAACP, but couldn't sue Malcolm. So Malcolm was very, very, very intelligent. And uh, Malcolm used to say that, uh, they say I'm a separatist. He said, but uh, I'm not a separatist. He said, it depends upon how you use words. He said, for example, America separated from Britain. 
1776. They didn't call it an act of separation. They called it an act of independence. He said, so among all I'm calling for is independence of Africans all over the world. Malcolm is correct. We must have our independence where we depend upon no one but ourselves. You are saying it is not important whom we live next door to, but what we control. That's all. And when we control what we control, be no problem. We always say all the time, racism is not an attitude. It's a question of power. If a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If he has power to lynch me, that's my problem. Indeed, that is a discussion that has been going on a lot recently. Congressman Gus Savage has said that it is impossible, in his view, for a black man to be a racist. No power. And he, he never explained it. Maybe you can. There's no power. There's no power. To be a racist, you must have power. That's why I laugh at them. You can have prejudice, but if it has no power involved, then you can't be a racist. How can you be? I said, the white man, he can want to lynch me. If he can't lynch me, he can do whatever he wants to do. But if he has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Go back to the telephone. Call it. It's your turn. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yeah, how you doing? Pretty good. Yeah, I like to uh, make a, I, I got two statements I like to make. First make of all, the brother that, 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 uh, that's next to you, he's very intelligent. He's very sharp. Okay, the first statement I would like to say is that the Bush administration, okay, when it comes to negotiations with um, Saddam Hussein over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, it seems like there's no room for it. I mean, he won't even meet them halfway. So I'm trying to figure out why not, you know, because um, the Palestinians, that was a land long before we all know. Okay. The, uh, those are European Jews that, not, that are not really Jews anyway. Okay, and what's your other they, statement? Huh? You said you had another statement? Yeah, okay, the other statement was um, you got a lot of black men and women over in the Persian Gulf that's willing to, to lay their life down, <clears throat> down for this country. But yet, a few months ago, uh, Bush vetoed the civil rights bill. Now, only thing I'm saying is going to sound kind of crazy, but this is my philosophy because I'm kind of like a militant, and I want to hear the brothers comment on this. Okay, if they all just say, hey, we're not fighting, and say the hell with it, that will give the Bush administration and let them see how serious we are because this is a slap in the face to us. I mean, these guys are ready to lay down their life and die for this shit, this stinking country. Yet he's going to veto the civil rights bill, and then just recently he turned around and Okay, uh, got you. We, got, we, we, we understand your sentiment fairly accurately. Is uh, Claire, my brother, again, the error they're being made is that they think that we are stupid and we don't remember anything. So they think that we're stupid, but what's going to happen is that the consciousness is going to rise because this is a voluntary army. It's not a draft. And once they try back the draft, they'll be stopped. There's no question about that. And this is a voluntary army. We know there's not a voluntary army. Those brothers and sisters who are in there got no choice. They got to go in there. That's clear. So those brothers and sisters themselves are going to be the first ones who are going to have to question what they're doing there, why they're doing there. And if you go back to the history of the Vietnam War, you will see many Africans had much clash with white troops inside the U.S. Army, inside Vietnam. And that's one of the reasons why that war had to come quickly to a screeching halt. This process will develop quickly in the beginning of this war. So uh, those, those problems will develop. Our job now is to begin to tell all other brothers and sisters when they start sucking up them into the Army that we're not going. And not only are we not going, but we're going to bring war to the streets of America. You do remember that after the First World War, returning veterans found conditions in black communities so horrible that they rioted. Every, every war. Time. Every war. World War I, the same thing in World War II, and the Vietnam War was cleared because at least we didn't wait for them to come back. We did it while they were there. And when these young men come back, they will be coming back to a country plagued by recession and other problems, which, of course, will be intensified in the black community, what do you think their response is going to be? Well, we know what their response is going to be. We've said that uh, there is, you know, people think that history repeats itself, but their response will be, the resistance will be more qualified than it was in the 60s. In the 60s, they ended with burning the flag. 
This time, they start with burning the flag. Let's go back to the telephone. Caller, it's your turn. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, I wanted to address my question to, to your guest. I was a freedom rider and spent some time in the Mississippi State Penitentiary at Parchman at the time that um, SNCC was in its heyday. Um, the, one of the questions that was, uh, or issues that was raised by um, uh, Stokely Carmichael, as he was then called, was that the only place for women in SNCC was prone. I just wonder if over these years that he has now uh, grown up, What's your he name? has another attitude about women. What's your name? My name is Shirley Smith. Shirley Smith. Well, Shirley Smith, I don't know who you are, but if you know anything about that statement, do you think that you judge a person on a phrase about a, a, a statement as powerful as, the, as a woman's movement? Oh, no. I just wanted to know. I, no, that's I what I'm asking. But that's what you did. See, Why didn't you go and read? I change in your attitude well, let about me tell a lot you. of things, and I just would like to know where you are in your attitude toward women. Well, I'm giving you one. Why don't you go and read the dedication to the book Black Power? Did you ever read that one? No. Well, why don't you read that one? That phrase will tell you. That comment has never been made publicly. Can you show it to me where it's written or where I've publicly stated it? Can you show it to me? Can well, you can bring you it and show me my writing? the issue of where your attitude toward women. No, 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 no. We're talking about the statements you made. That's precise. Let us be precise. Do you have anywhere in any book I have written, any speech I have made, any public statement where that statement can be found? Or has it been told to you by others? That's the first question I ask you. No, it has been told to me by others who heard you make the statement. Right, good. So that means that if the statement was made, it was made only once. It was heard by a few, not a public statement. So even if I, were not, if I were not a revolutionary, I could deny it. I made the statement. The statement was made as a joke. Of course, you, if you say you were part of SNCC, would understand that in any organization, jokes can sometimes be brutal, even in war. If you go to war, the jokes that soldiers make, if you're not a soldier, can make you feel bad. And if you're an African, the jokes we tell about ourselves, if you're not African, try to make it, will get you. So that was a closed joke inside of SNCC, and only SNCC people could understand it. And if you could understand it, you would know it, because African men can oppress their women everywhere. But the one place we cannot oppress our women is on the front lines fighting for our struggle. If you look at the history of Africa, everywhere you will see women on the front lines, from Nzinga all the way down to Fanny Luhema to Asata Shaku. Women are always on the front lines. So this statement can only be a statement, obviously, not made for African women, made maybe for some other women, and if made for African women, obviously it had double-edged humor because women are always on the front lines in our struggle, even though we oppress them everywhere. I don't know for other cultures. I just speak of my own. Are statements that you are alleged to have made privately because you're a public figure followed you throughout these past no. 22 years? This statement was picked up by the white women in SNCC who were put out of SNCC when I was chairperson and then picked up by the FBI. So since that's all they got, let them have it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to the telephone. Caller, you're up next. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Wait, Caller, wait. go right wait. ahead. Go right ahead, please. Hello? Hello, go right ahead. Uh, yes, I'd like to see um, Brother uh, Kwame Ture in a session with uh, Juan Williams. <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask um, um, Kwame Ture uh, to please comment further on the fact that uh, General Colin Powell stated that the military is an excellent way for blacks to advance, and he used himself as an example. Thank you. Okay, let me say that Kwame Ture may not even be aware of who Juan Williams is. Juan Williams is a reporter for mm -hmm. the Washington Post who has taken civil rights leaders and black elected officials to task in many of his articles. I don't know if you want to deal with him, but let's mm -hmm. talk about Colin Powell. Well, anyway, uh, I just figure that any African who gets a position on the journey, what, what does he write for? The Washington Post. On the Washington Post ought to know the only reason they're there is like Colin Powell, because of the blood of the mass of their people, and that position is not for them, it's for the people, and should be used not to criticize the people, but to criticize the system which their people have been fighting to put them in that position. If they don't understand that, then uh, 
really they betray the struggles and the blood of their people. Colin Powell has said that the military is an excellent way for a black person to advance. I cannot see how anyone can tell me that the best way for one to advance is by being a hired killer. Even I don't see why we have ROTC on campus. We fought to put it off. I don't, you mean to tell me the only way we can advance is by being killers and killers of the, 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 the enemies of American imperialism? Because who do we kill? We don't kill our enemies. Do we go to Azania, South Africa and kill uh, the clerk? Do we kill the Ku Klux Klan? Do we kill racist policemen? No, we go and we kill Arabs who ain't do nothing against us. We don't even know them. They've never done anything against us. So uh, it is clear here that Mr. Powell is a liar. Mr. Powell is a traitor to his people, and Mr. Powell is a traitor to humanity, and Mr. Powell accepts that position. That position was made again, and don't you ever forget it, because of Dr. Martin Luther King. If you love King, you can never love Powell. If, Powell. You, were, if you were in a position to advise someone who had attained the position of general in the U.S. Army and was offered the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, what would you have said? Blow it up. <laughs> the Pentagon? Blow it up. Obviously, Kwame Touré has not changed in very many respects. I have has... changed, please. I'm more knowledgeable, I'm more experienced, and I'm more determined to destroy American imperialism. He is no more diplomatic than he has ever been. However, he has always been known to speak his mind, and to speak his mind openly and clearly. That is what he is doing tonight. Let's go back to the telephone. Caller, it's you. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello. My name is Calvin Ruffin, too. I like to tell Mr. Touré that he is an incredible inspiration to me. He is... He's, he is the epitome of what we should all be aspiring to be okay now I'm a young aspiring black filmmaker and I like to just ask him what what should I be prepared to deal with as far as uh, racial blockades etc okay my sister Zodi too and Zinger are watching so we're kind of happy to even have a chance to listen to him so that's it okay you're a filmmaker yes sir okay well you must understand that if you're a filmmaker none of your films if they're serious will be put on television that's the first thing. What do you think about Spike Lee, by Oh, I think he's just a filmmaker who makes money. That's all. Uh, uh, he tries, but, uh, you know, if you want to, 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 to give a message to the people, then you have to be serious. You have to do some serious study, understand some things. It's not spontaneous. Uh, and what happens is you end up doing worse things. In fact, when the films are properly analyzed, then you do with good things. You know, if you want your films to get on Hollywood, you can't give a line for the people. That's clear. You can't help your people and make money, too. Not in the film. So if you're a real filmmaker, at this point in history, your films will not be popular. They will not be on the mass television, but the conscious element of your people will appreciate it. You will give inspiration to them and uh, push others forward. But if you're looking for popularity in this country, you will never get it by being honest or righteous or supporting just causes. Spontaneity is one of the mistakes we all made as young activists. Would you say that you would advise not only this young filmmaker, but other young activists to a avoid being spontaneous they, and to understand their history they must avoid it that's the error that we spoke about of uh, with all the best of intentions that spike lee has spontaneity will not adjust any cause we need serious scientific organization and clear analysis of the obstacles in our path okay let's go back to the telephone caller it's you you're on the air go ahead please uh mr Ture, this is jj johnson i don't know if you remember me but i first met you down jackson state um, I have two quick questions. First question I have to mention, in your, uh, the book you co-wrote, Black Power, you spoke on the colonialization that um, we as African Americans are going through. I wish you would comment on that. And second of all, how do you feel about the misrepresentation of the statements that you made, uh, I would say back in the 60s, about the Black Power and the Black Panther political party and things like that, and how the media has changed that all around? 
and turned it so negative. Please, comment. Thank you. Thank you. All right, on your second question, remember the first one for me. I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> on the uh, second question about the uh, press media, the uh, capitalist press, of course, is an arm of the capitalist system, and it must preserve the system. Uh, therefore, it needs reformists, and reformists need the capitalist press. But I'm not a reformist. I'm a revolutionary. And, of course, when I first uh, entered serious struggle in Mississippi, there we couldn't use the press. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee could not use the press. Dr. King's organizations, they used the press because they were involved in mobilization. We were involved in serious organization. If the press man knew who we were, we would be killed, assassinated by the terrorist groups. So press was not an arm for us. I understand that the press is supposed to destroy uh, any uh, program that is trying to help bring our people together other than a reform program which paints America, look, makes her look nice, and keeps our people inside of her, politically speaking. So uh, we don't expect anything from the press, and when we come in contact with it, we fight it to use it, and of course when it comes in contact with us, it tries its best to destroy us. So we understand the nature of the struggle here. And since we're not reformists, we're in total struggle with the American capitalist press. Your first question. Are black people in America a colonized people? There's no question about it that we're a colonized people. Not only are we that, as a matter of fact, in the 60s, when we wrote that book, and the book is being uh, republished, and I have just looked at it, which I still hold to the thesis of the book, that we didn't even have neo-colonial structures, but today we even have neo-colonial structures to show how really colonial we are. We have Bantu stands everywhere with uh, neo-colonial puppets. We have mayors who have no power. <laughs> as a matter of fact, some of our mayors are more are fighting harder for Israel than they are for Azania, South Africa. This man, this governor here, they're so proud about this one who made the biggest one. Where is he now? In Israel. Where is Dinkins in New York? In Israel. What do they do for Azania, South Africa? Nothing. Okay, let's go back to the telephone caller. It's your turn, Yorandia. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes. Good evening, Kwame and Kocho. Uh, Kwame... I'm late to you. Try to make it brief. <laughs> yeah, I just realized we're all out of time. Um, there's, this been, there's been this argument with respect to nationalism and socialism, uh, one or the other, or both in combination. Uh, can you give me a brief speech as to, you know, whether or not you see a dichotomy, a dilemma, or, or what, what the story is there? How much time do we have to answer this question? About two minutes. All right. I'm sorry, we don't have time, but let me tell you. According to Marxism, Leninism, they see nationalism as uh, basically negative. Secretary, that great son of Africa, correctly pointed out that when you go from a nation to a state, as was in the case of Europe, nationalism is dominantly negative. But when you go from a state to a nation, as in the case of Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, South and Central America, the colonized world, nationalism is a plus. We must understand the laws of dialectics. The first thing that Karl Marx teaches us about the law of dialectics is that everything is positive and negative at the same time, and in certain conditions, the negative can be dominant or the positive can be dominant, but something is never stagnant or all, dom or all negative. Anytime someone tells you that nationalism is always negative and dominantly negative at all times, they know nothing of dialectics. We have definitely shown, and you will see for yourself, all the struggles since the Second uh, Imperialist War, what they call World War II, which have battered imperialism, have all fought under national liberation struggles, all of them. One of the better known speeches of yours as Stokely Carmichael was your Free Huey speech back in 1968. How must you have felt when you heard of the death of Huey Newton? After all, you had been made an honorary leader of the Black Panther Party, and then you hear, while presumably in Conakry, that Huey Newton is dead, shot to death in a dispute with a drug dealer. No, Huey Newton was killed by the police, there's no question here. Huey Newton was killed by the police, there's no question here. And anyone who thinks differently is just not thinking and know nothing about politics and nothing of struggle in this country. 
when Huey Newton was charged with the killing of that, of that policeman. In every police chapter in this country, there are found racist organizations like the Aryan Brotherhood, the Ku Klux Klan. It makes sense. If you're a racist, be a policeman. You can shoot them. Justifiable homicide. You ain't got nothing to worry about. And the police told us then that if it takes them 25 years, they're going to kill Huey Newton. They told us that. They killed Huey Newton. The police killed Huey Newton. Nobody else killed him except the police. Okay, we have time for one more telephone call. We have about one minute left. Caller, please make it quick. Hello? What role does culture play in the liberation of black people, and is it time for black people to make their exodus to the continent? Thank you. Culture plays a crucial role, and unless we understand it, we get confused. Let me give you an example. Since the 70s, they've been talking about gay and lesbian liberation. And people come to us in our All-African People's Revolutionary Party all the time and say, you know we have this problem. This is not our problem. This is not our problem. And some say you're a macho. We tell them, get out of here. In the white community, homosexuality is not accepted. They're intolerant. They bash in their brains. But I've been all over the African world. And I've never seen anybody bash in the brain of any homosexual in the African world. We are not intolerant of homosexualities. Therefore, this is not a problem in our culture. It is a problem for European culture. We should not let other cultures impose their problems upon us. Therefore, culture is extremely important. Your ideology comes from your culture. That's why we are in Krumis Touréist in two minutes. And that's why he is who he is, Kwame Touré. Thank you all for joining us. Have a pleasant evening. I'll see you tomorrow.
like hell. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. We're going to have our responses to this issue of statements that were made or presentation and interview done by Dr. Brother Kwame Toure um, in the year 1995. We're going to talk about the reflections of things we said then and how do they apply to to today's world. Before we do that and bring our political panelists and analysts in, we quickly like to make a couple of announcements to remind you that don't forget if you haven't purchased your book yet, uh, as relates to Pan African Roots, Publishes, Volume 1 and 2, 
please, the name of the book is We Demand a Full Disclosure and Disinization of All Slavery Errors, Records, Volume 1 and Volume 2. After Bob Brown, go to the website www.a-aprp.gc.org. Please check that book out, support the writer. It's a book that you should have in your archives, and don't forget that. Also, it's make a nice gift for African History Month to give to someone. Also, we'd like to remind you to join us as well as the African Awareness Association as they take their Black History, Education, and Culture Travel Challenge Tour to Cuba from July 23rd to 31st, leaving from Cancun, Mexico. For more information, you may call 804-549-7492 or 202-714-9435 or check out the website at www.aaa-cubatours.com. Those are our announcements for today. We will turn back to our political analysts and panelists for today's program and the response that they just listened to as Brother Kwame Ture uh, spoke to the conditions of facing African people then in 95 and do they still exist today in 2022? Brother Anthony, you are a continuator and inheritor of the working life of Brother Kwame Ture. What do you have to say in terms of some of the points that were raised that is important to reemphasize to our people today in order for us to get our true liberation? Your response, Brother Anthony. Uh, yes. Uh, some of the problems he, uh, he alluded to in the interview have worsened. For example, homelessness is worse today than it was in '95. And also uh, the confusion we have over our identity, even though uh, uh, in spite of the decades we spent fighting fighting this question, a lot of us still don't understand that we're Africans, period, regardless of where the slave ship left our ancestors. And uh, and uh, let's see, our enemies are still the same. Imperialism in all of its forms, including Zionism, racism, etc. And uh, those have uh, those are intensifying. And uh, the need for us to get organized is uh, greater today than it was in 1995. When he gave that interview And to find out more about your organization Brother Anthony Can you give our people some logistical information Sure Certainly Uh, To find out more information About our Organization uh, People can visit our website www. Dot A-A-P-R-P-Z-C.org. There they can find out uh, the history of our organization, uh, uh, more about our ideology and criminalism terrorism, as well as uh, purchase of uh, uh, Brother Bob's uh, uh, book, bu- 
book, The The Digitization and uh, Release of Our our Records Must Be Fully Disclosed, Volumes 1 and 2. They can uh, can, uh, find out all that information through our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Uh, thank you, Brother Anthony. We now make a transition to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, before we make a transition, as a representative of the African Awareness Association, and um, you're planning your uh, uh, freedom ride tour to Cuba, July the 23rd to the 31st, just talk or just briefly a little bit about why it's important to take brothers and sisters to Cuba. Why Cuba, Brother Africa? I mean, Brother Haki. Well, Cuba, Cuba is the embodiment of, you know, of liberation. Uh, when we talk about struggle and the benefits of struggle, Cuba, Cuba pretty much exemplifies you know, what it is in terms of achieving one's liberation. So to see people free and to see people struggling against, against you know, tremendous oppression uh, gives you a sense of uh, not only pride but a sense of what could be. So I think for Africans, you know, born in the U.S. to go to Cuba and actually interact to see those brothers and sisters over there in terms of the kind of pride, the kind of civility, the kind of uh, 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 compassion that they convey in terms of uh, what it is to be a human being, it, it makes you realize, you know, there's something more in terms of the humdrum existence. So we encourage people to go to see firsthand to see, you know, uh, the, what, 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 what Cuba offers the world, what could be in America. But also equally important, Brother Africa, I think it's also important when we look at the, the, the educational infrastructure, you know, Cuba. And we're talking about a little small country, a little poor country. But despite its poverty, despite um, um, the, uh, the, uh, the embargo imposed by the U.S., uh, despite all of that, uh, Cuba is one of the leading countries in terms of uh, academic excellence. And so when you talk about great doctors, great engineers, uh, when you talk about great educators, uh, when you talk about these things, these things are prevalent in, in Cuba. So we have to ask ourselves, if they can do that in poor Cuba, why in the richest country on the planet, why can't we do that here in America as an oppressed community? So, so clearly Cuba has a lot to offer, but people should go firsthand and see for themselves to ask those definitive kind of questions or concerns that they may have in relation to Cuba because we understand the, the kind of propaganda that permeates the society. So people have a lot of misconceptions in terms of what Cuba is all about. Go to Cuba for yourself. See firsthand what Cuba is all about. You know, uh, learn as much as you possibly can. Apply some of the stuff that you learn in Cuba and African community much better for it. Now, for that reason, I encourage people to go to Cuba firsthand to see for themselves. Thank you, Brother Aki. And now your response to some of the statements and uh, information that were articulated by Brother Kwame Ture in 95. And how does any of that apply to our reality today? What is your take when you listen to this first part of a two-part series that we'll be talking about? What do you take from the first part that you just heard, Brother Haki? Can you discuss your, uh, your analysis of, of what was just articulated? Points. Uh, I don't want to belabor the other points that Brother Kwame made. Uh, I don't want to belabor those points. But two particular points I thought of a particular interest to the African community. I think one is the whole question around terms of the advancement, uh, you know, economic advancement by going to the military. And historically, this is, on, on some level, that's maybe true, but it's only true because of conscription. In other words, 
The fact that jobs weren't available for African for African people, the only option in terms of having some kind of livelihood in terms of having access to a job uh, was going through the military. The problem is that the, the, the question of conscription is no longer relevant as far as the military is concerned. Given the kind of automation, that, automation that's taking place, they need fewer and fewer people in the military, uh, which means that conscription is, is no longer needed. And so, uh, so in terms of finding employment in the military for a lot of African people, it's simply not a reality at this point in time. And so this is what we have to understand. But aside from that, Brother Africa, this whole notion, is, and as a Kwame, Brother Kwame alluded to, this whole notion that some, in terms of being a killer uh, is somehow an, an attribute. I think it's something that fundamentally we have to disregard, something that we fundamentally have to reject, because there's nothing heroic about being part of the U.S. military, going around the world killing people, people, particularly many of these people are brown, black and brown people, you know, who are who did nothing, uh, you know, uh, to African people. So for what, so what reason would you have, possibly, for going over there and killing these people, you know, uh, who's suffering the same enemy that we're confronted with? So clearly. Uh, this whole question of conscription is something that, uh, you know, uh, bec- because it no longer exists, is a very good thing. And I'm very happy that uh, the U.S. You need military needs less and less people. Uh, the second point, Brother after is sense of what it is to be an American, and we, we labor this point a lot. Uh, he talked about, you know, Colin Powell in terms of, you know, his, 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 his quote, unquote, his, his rise, at least the, 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 uh, the moderator, talked about Colin's power rise, you know, through the ranks in terms of coming most powerful military man in the U.S. Uh, in, in US uh, uh, institution. Uh, the problem with that is that to, to be an American means that you have to negate so much in terms of your own being. Uh, not only that, it means fundamentally, you know, it, 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 it increases in possibility in terms of, you know, the masses of people to involving. Because what historically what happens is that people like Colin Powell uh, normally get the spotlight. So they highlight someone like Colin Powell, given the perception, you too could be one day like Colin Powell. Never asking the question, what does Colin Powell represent? Colin Powell represented the worst in terms of reaction when it comes to uh, 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 being uh, uh, a part and parcel of a, of, a, of a system which is diametrically opposed to the interests of African people. And so being part of any kind of structure which is diametrically opposed to the interests of African people, and you being an African yourself, uh, speaks to the kind of um, confusion that has to, has to exist in one's mind to want to be a Colin Powell. Now, and also, but with this question in terms of being American, Brother Africa, it's important that, you know, often when people try to be American, the results are devastating. And let's just give you some examples. A while back, there was a brother named Kenneth Ford out of Maryland, and this brother was an NSA anal- analyst. Uh, Kenneth Ford uh, spoke Arabic. Now, Kenneth Ford was tasked with this, or finding out if Saddam Hussein was, had weapons of mass destruction or if he was, in fact, killing the Kurds. Well, according, because he speaks Arabic, he was able to ascertain that all these things that the media was saying about Saddam Hussein were not true. And so when Dick Cheney came to him and asked him, so what you got for me, uh, Kenneth Ford assumed that Dick Cheney wanted the truth. So he told him, I don't have anything for you. So looking perturbed, as the report stated, uh, Cheney would go, a week later he would come back and he would ask the young man, what you got for me? And Kenneth Ford again would, would, would devour to him, I don't have anything for you. That you know that you know, there's, 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 there's nothing here to report. Of course, that angered Dick Cheney because what Dick Cheney wanted him to do was to lie. He wanted him to say, "Yes, he has weapons of mass destruction. He's killing Kurds. He's done all these horrible things. We have to invade." Kenneth Ford to do that. He was an honest man. He was a church going church going African. 
So he thought that honesty was the best policy. Not understanding to be American, his responsibility, particularly as a, to be an American, was to fundamentally lie. That was his job. He didn't do that. As a consequence, they set him up. They put FBI documents in his home when he was on vacation in Florida and got him for, and got him for espionage. Now, ironically, you know, because you know, he was with the NSA, FBI documents were retained to him. But it doesn't matter because most American people are pretty naive when it comes to uh, judicial affairs. And so they convicted him on the word of the government that he was guilty of espionage. So clearly, being an American was, was, was disadvantageous to uh, this particular young, this young brother, you know, who now has a different perspective in terms of what it is to be an American. Another example is Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Sterling. Uh, Jeffrey Sterling is a former CIA agent. Now, supposedly, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Sterling, he, this alleged, according to them, he released information to a, a reporter, James Rise, in the New York Times. Well, uh, well, the problem is that a lot of the information they had was circumstantial. But that was sufficient enough to, for them to convict him. But the reason they really convicted him because Jeffrey Sterling was upset about the fact that, you know, a lot of assignments he was denied simply because he was an African person. And so particularly when it comes to places like Europe and the Middle East, he was denied those positions because of the color of his skin. And the fact that Jeffrey uh, Sterling's position was that because of the color of my skin doesn't make me somehow less effective than someone who happens to be white. Uh, speaks to the kind of discriminatory nature that happens that's happening right here in the CIA. Well, that didn't set well with the CIA. They wanted his ass out. They wanted him badly. So they cook, cooked up this, 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 this phony information about somehow him leaking information to James Rising to justify, um, you know, him landing him into prison. So clearly, being American uh, 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 didn't, didn't bode well, you know, for Jeffrey Sterling, the former CIA agent. Uh, Terry Elbury, the FBI, former FBI agent, uh, and this brother was originally his mother is his, his, his mother is well, actually his father was initially from Somali, Somalia. Now, and this brother he also had a similar kind of complaint in terms of racism in the FBI, and his whole task was to monitor you know uh, you know the the African community you know there in Minnesota, and he he, he you know he was very upset about that because he realized that all of these claims in terms of subversive activities among the Somali, Somali community wasn't happening, and he wanted other assignments other than uh, uh, Somali community. Well, having done that, that rubbed the FBI officials the wrong way, I mean, because he's an uppity, he's an arrogant African, and uh, it simply wasn't going to have that. So what they alleged was that he leaked some classified information, even though they didn't divulge exactly what this class, the nature of this classified information, they said he leaked classified information to justify railroading him and putting him in jail. Again, the question turns to whether being American was a hell of a price to pay. And lastly, Mohammed Noor, the um, Minnesota, uh, former Minnesota police officer, he responded to a, 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 a crime scene late one night, and it was real dark. And this woman uh, ran up on him, and he shot out of panic because he doesn't know what's going on because he can't see. It's dark. Well, it's just what happened. The woman that he shot happened to be a white woman. Well, you know, unlike the kind of support the police officers get when they shoot African people, well, killing white women is a different ball game. I mean, you don't kill white women. I mean, when you do that, then you just price to be paid. So all that support traditionally lended to police officer was not forthcoming for Muhammad Noah. In fact, he found himself, you know, ostracized. In fact, uh, not only was he ostracized, but um, they made it clear to him right away, no investigation or nothing, that you know that he will be charged. Now think about that one. Now here's a man who believes in him. He's also from Somalia. 
And he also thought that the American dream was real. And so he so therefore he thought that you know he would be treated fairly and that the color of his skin was 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 irrelevant. Well he found out in the context of America that color of your skin very much uh has much relevance and it does determine how you treat it. Uh it does determine, you know, how uh you know the kind of the kind of uh, obstacles that you're confronted with. He learned that the hard way. All that because they wanted to be a true American. So my so my response to people who want to be a true American, understand being a true American, the price is simply too high to pay, and we really have to stop and think about what it is to be a true American, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Hockey. Brother Moses, your response to Brother Kwame Trey's presentation. What's your thoughts, George, Brother George. Moses? To Kwame Chui, an interview that you just heard. We just played Kwame Chui's right. interview in 1995. Just give me a general right. response to that. It shows that he was still one of the great minds on this planet at that date. And uh, he's, he was very interesting in his thought uh, um, in terms of liberation of our people. And um, I think, you know, that was that was great. I had never heard that. Uh, it was good to hear. All right, thank you, Brother Moses. Just out of nowhere, talk to me. Well, Kwame Kwame Ture really helped tie in the whole situation this evening. You know, we were looking at the situation in Illinois, the militarization of the police, and it really started in Iraq, the militarization of the police. And the fact that Saddam uh, Hussein wanted to uh, have the, uh, he wanted a trade-off for the Palestinians. And the fact that what is modern-day Kuwait was annexed by the British from what was Iraq. So, I mean, it was uh, just the issues are are mounting such as homelessness uh the medical divide but the main thing is the militarization of the police uh it really started in iraq with an urban uh, urban war when we went into the capital of iraq and we knocked down doors and pulled citizens from their homes we were training the police force and they have bought that home and when 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 we talk about the connection, for example, the uh, one of the analysts talked about the connection, world connection now, workers uniting globally and standing in solidarity, why they fight for their liberation, where they stand. We saw in the first part of this year five Mexican journalists killed and i i believe that the device that the israelis sell that can track your phones and things and know where you are even when you think you're safe and hiding uh we know it was sold during the uh during the campaign last year in 2021 in mexico and we saw these journalists shot dead so there is a real press out there. The people need to stand in solidarity. This information that was presented this evening was from journalists doing investigative journalism and uh, an officer with integrity who blo- broke the blue wall. So uh, Kwame, it's refreshing to hear Kwame Ture speak 
and talk about the uh, and to define nationalism uh, for us and why when you saw, for example, the breakup of Croatia to form three European countries was a, in effect narrow nationalism versus people of African descent, for example, us as formerly enslaved people in the United States, when we try to organize and pull it together, it is not a racist uh, conduct, and not at all, because we must liberate ourselves in order to work and, and work with other groups uh, that have like goals and know what those end goals are when we're working together. I just think that uh, so much of what was going on in 1995 is manifested today. And when you spoke about President Bush being the former head of the CIA, that certainly was true. And as Adam Clayton Powell said, there were no weapons of mass destruction. We knew it, but we continued Iraq. And what's even terrible is that with the sanctions that we imposed on Iraq, think of the civilians that died because they didn't have basic things like antibiotics or uh, or uh, diabetic drugs, drugs for high blood pressure, those kind of things. So it's a, a real atrocity. And... Uh, the, the the overall thing about this evening, uh, Brother Africa, is not only the 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 uh, listening to uh, the great leader Kwame Ture, but the review of the articles, what happened in Illinois, what happened in in Baltimore, with the assassination or the murder of this officer, this officer being killed with his own gun shot in the back of his head. Seeing this week a 14-year-old teenager being wrestled and abused, physically abused by two adult males on the police department. We can't send our children to the mall. We can't let them go out. You know, this is the, the pandemic. There are two pandemics, and one of them is the brutality of what is happening to black people in the United States. And Kwame says something very interesting about how every uh, immigrant can come here and be, have a right to vote, but we're still struggling. And we saw 39 states pass voter suppression laws. And this week, Brother Africa, we see it in effect. We see in Texas how many, not hundreds, but thousands of ballots are being rejected because the state of Texas, Governor Albert and uh, uh, Abbott, did not uh, allow the League of Women Voters to do a nonpartisan group, group to do educational work for voters, especially with the changes in the law. So Kwame is right. We have to not reform, but we have to have a complete revolution. And it's going to take a lot of work, but we're on the way. And we have to uh, organize millions of people to know that life can be better if the workers control the means of production and control the economy rather than the 1%. Thank you, Susan. Uh, 
Brother Maurice, your take on presentation by part one by Kwame Ture. Do we have Brother Maurice? I think we may have lost Brother Maurice. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we can have our political panelists, analysts, find the thought. And I thank Brother Maurice is back on. Brother Maurice, your response to Kwame Ture, uh presentation, 1995. Yes, yes. Sorry about, about that technical difficulty. Yes, uh, as always, listening to uh, Brother Kwame Ture is always electrifying, electrifying, you know, and always uh, informative, you know, uh, Three, three speech was 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 a brilliant speech. Um, uh, three things that that stuck that, that that stuck out to me was the first <laughs> the first uh, part of um, part of the speech that stuck out to me was in reference to John Lewis and and you know when they asked the question uh you was you know you was friends with John Lewis and he his response was yeah I'm still I'm still struggling I'm, you know unlike him being in you know serving as uh, you know, serving as congressman for the United States, I'm I'm still here struggling, doing what he was doing at one point. That was interesting, and all you know, and and and, and you know, today, uh, today is the, the day that Frederick Douglass died on, and it was very interesting. You know, it was very, 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 very. Um, I, I don't think we should look over that that comment when he said, uh, a very powerful comment when he said, uh, you know, unlike you know Frederick. I'm not like Fred. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not like Frederick Douglass in the in the, in the in the means that he wanted to be ambassador of this United States of, of America. Um, you know, but he, he, <laughs> that was very, that was a very you know very serious comment on what he said because who who would want to represent uh, this nation um, of all the havoc and all of all of all of the, the, oh my God all of the the sickfulness and deceitful things that they did to us. To our people, um, but other parts of the speech was, you know, very important too. Uh, when the caller called in and stated that he is uh, up and coming, uh, he wanted to make movies, and and and, 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 and brother Kwame was very very uh, correct, and it's very important point that he made that you cannot make money and also serve. Your people, um, you, you you cannot do that, and you cannot do that in, in Hollywood. Definitely in Hollywood, any any type of movie that you want to make that's gonna that's gonna progress the people, or like he said, push the line for the people, it's, it's not gonna happen in Hollywood. So I think you know these these some of the um, comments. And the last one, last observation that I made was uh, with his response to Huey Newton because uh, being killed by the police, you know it. it you know, um, and that they all, you know, they always push the narrative that he was he died in in the drug deal, and and some um, fellow comrades really believe that you know that he died, but you know by a uh, drug dealer. But it's the, but Kwame Ture made a very interesting point of what he was told by police officers, or what they were told by police officers that that they if it would take 26 years to kill Huey Newton, we would kill him. And 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 this is this relates to the ongoing killing uh, by police at the hands of police officers, or the ongoing brutality at the hands of police officers. This is how these people thinking. Um, how these how these how these people think. But those are the observations that I made uh, in regards to crime to race. This speech tonight that we heard, man, very very powerful. 
powerful freedom fighter, and he still lives on, man, today. Thank you, Brother Maurice, and to our political panelists and analysts for their perspectives on this program today. This is Kwame Ture in Liberation, part one of a two-part series. We will continue this series next week. What we're going to do right now take a Rome share culture break, and when we come back, we would like to have your final thoughts for tonight. This is Brother Africa on Africa on the Moon. We'll be right back. A negative attitude towards Africa. In San Francisco, on African Liberation Day, Brother Walter Rodney, an African historian, noted both the importance of African Liberation Day in terms of our African identity and some of the root causes for our problem of identification. I have met brothers and sisters who say that their mother tongue, quote-unquote, is French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, as well as English, which we speak. And because of this, we have a problem of identification. We do not know whom we are. And that is why this gathering is of great symbolic importance, because it is an act of identification. We are saying that we identify with the African people of the African continent. We are saying that we are an African people. And when we make this identification, have no illusions about the fact that this is a very revolutionary initiative. It is a rejection of every other form of identification which the white society has asked us to accept. Let me draw your attention to something which white universities and white libraries practice. And this is a university community. Numerous universities lie around this land. Go into their libraries and check the Library of Congress cards on the Europe or European. You will find all entries listed concerning the continent of Europe. You will also find entries listed about Europeans in East Africa, Europeans in North Africa, Europeans in Asia and Australia. Look under the Chinese, you will find entries listed not only for mainland China, but for Malaysia and for the Chinese in, in, the, in North America. But look on the Africa and the Africans, the only entries on the Africans relate to the continent itself. There are no entries on the Africans overseas. There is no such category. Africans who have been raped from the continent mysteriously disappear and become Negroes. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine. Palestine. Needs our love. Needs our love. 
There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine, Needs her, freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. Palestine. Needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone, so all the world will know that Palestine Needs her, freedom. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. needs our love. Needs, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. needs our love. Thank you. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move on the 20th of February 2022. This is part one of Kwame Ture and Liberation theme. Next week, we'll continue with part two. And what we're going to do right now is close out this program with some final remarks by our personal panelists and analysts for today's program. And we'll start off right now with Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for the night, Brother Moses. While we're waiting for Brother Moses to connect with us, we'll go to Brother Sister Eleanor. Your final thoughts, Sister Eleanor. Well, thank you, uh fellow analysts and you, Brother Africa, for a wonderful show. And Kwame Brown, uh, Kwame Toure is a true revolutionary. And that interview on the Kojo Nande show was well handled. Uh, the callers, it, it was an excellent, uh, excellent interview. And it's uh, so enlightening and such an educational piece. Uh, it was fantastic. And uh, we must uh, maintain our unity. And uh, in the Billion Rising this week, the sisters in the Congo participated, as well as sisters in Cameroon, uh, Afghanistan, the Philippines, the United States, and 72 countries. And that's a fantastic thing. But we have to stand in unity, and uh, Kwame, and, uh, Kwame Ture said something interesting when he 
talked about John Lewis and, and these people. He said he's not antagonistic towards them because his, his eye is on the prize. That's uh, the total unification of Africa. He was a, he's a strong Pan-Africanist, and, and that's, that was what was so important. And look, uh, today we see that Congress couldn't even pass the John Lewis voter bill or the – they had two bills to make it so that the former enslaved people would be guaranteed and other – uh, marginalized voters would be able to exercise that simple right. And 39 states have taken it away, and Congress did not stand with the people. It's, it's unfortunate. So uh, we, 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 we're watching, and uh, we see the continued police violence throughout the country. It's just daily news so uh thank you so much brother africa for a fascinating show and uh thank you fellow fellow analysts and listeners and i look forward to seeing you next time on africa thank you africa on the move thank you sister eleanor we're going to see if we can go back and bring in brother moses are you there brother moses Thank you, thank you, brother. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it's been an interesting show. Um, I think you know we we can you can never be too organized, as they say. Uh, um, you can certainly plan to organize or organize to fail, uh, fail to organize or organize to fail. Um, um, I thank I thank I thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you. Have a good night. You do the same, Brother Moses. We thank you. Brother Maurice, talk to us. Your final thoughts for tonight. It's always a pleasure um being a participant on Africana Move with these very, very great uh co hosts of the show, co panelists. It's always an honor to 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 present alongside with all of the panelists that was here tonight. I'm always learning something new. I'm more inspired for the, to, 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 to go through the rest of the week, go through the rest of the struggle with, 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 with the food for thought every Sunday that we receive um, on this program. Uh, as always, Brother Africa, thank you so much for having me on this show. I know I'm not on the show here and there. I miss, I'm not here all the time, but listening to the playback even if I'm not here. And I just thank you so much. And I urge the listeners and I hope for the listeners to organize in some way, some form, some some fashion. And I'm to Ray, the great freedom fighter we heard tonight, as he stated, if you don't like or if you don't see an organization out there that you don't like, create one your own. Um, you know, we have to bring back community. Our community is is everybody's on online and and on social media. We don't have we don't really have a, a community no more. Everybody is, is 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 dispersed as they want it want us to be. But uh, we have to continue to struggle. Thank you. 
Thank you, Brother Maurice. And we're going to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, give us your final thoughts for tonight. Well, you know, I think, Brother Africa, to say that the, the conditions of the African people are perilous is a bit of an understatement. You know, here recently, you know, they talk about inflation rate of in excess of 15%. Even though officially, uh, government officials say it's only 7.5%, it still represents a, a, a disproportionate increase in terms of inflation, which has never been seen in the last uh, 40 years in society. So clearly there are some problems. Now, and this is superimposed upon the fact that they're talking about interest rates increase, and in which some officials are talking about seven interest rates increases over the years 2022. Now, so, what this simply means is that if you make money much more um, difficult to obtain, the problem is that you already have a situation in place in which a relatively few number of people, less than one, less one percent of the population, who control all the assets. Well, those assets values increase in value every year. Uh, in order for the government to to receive any type of revenues, you know, from those assets, then there has to be some liquidity. There has to be some money available for these very wealthy people to have access to. Now, what the government is proposing is that they would cut off all the money to these very wealthy people. Well, that means that it's, it's going to cripple the economy. What does that mean for African people? Well, one of the things I think is very important we understand is that, you know, any decline in this overall economy is going to have very devastating repercussions for African people. In other words, uh, as this economy declines, the, imp- imp- uh, the, um, the, 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 the intent of those positions of power is to find scapegoats. And in, in the history of America, when we talk about the, the, the evolution of scapegoating, and we understand that African people historically have always been their favorite scapegoats in terms of whatever economic problems uh, present themselves in the society. So we've got to begin to understand that given the backdrop of all these economic changes that are taking place and the very negative impact it's going to have on the overall economy, we've got to start asking ourselves, are we prepared for whatever's coming down the road at us? And, and unfortunately, many of us are still under, under the perception you know, that uh, there, is, there is no problem, uh, that everything is going to right itself. Even in the face of um, uh, um, voter disenfranchisement, uh, even in the face of record number of unemployment, even in the face of uh, 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 surging hopelessness that's, that's permeating throughout the society, many of us still hold hope that things are going to be all okay. It's certainly a very, very ironic position to take. For me, the position to take such a position is sort of surreal. Because it presupposes that you don't have inkling, any understanding whatsoever in terms of how the economy is organized, how it actually operates, and the impact it has on people. We have to wake up and realize that this is no joke. Um, no, matter, you know, no matter how patriotic you are, you have to come to the realization that the situation for African people is critical. We must have organization. We must have institutions. Because what's coming at us is, is, is I wouldn't say it's unprecedented. Clearly, because we look at you know when we look at Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, you know, um, or, 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 or or fascist Spain, we see the history in terms of what transpired when those societies collapsed, and we understand the kind of inherent destruction that ensues when those societies decline. Well, America is different, given the, given the level of technology, given the level of propaganda that are utilized in terms of pitting people against one another. 
So if we can anticipate the kind of destruction he 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 type of destruction geared toward or or, or, or directed at African people, it's be considerably much more destructive. And that's being uh, and I know that's for some people that seems overly pessimistic, but the reality is that because we're talking about history and we talk about the fact that human beings continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again in the context of history. When you superimpose the innovation, technological innovation in terms of ability to kill, then you've got to agree that the potential in terms of devastating impact or devastating destruction of African people is assured. We've got to wake up and realize this is no joke. This is no joke. This is very, very real. But, of course, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, that is key. Uh, without some fundamental understanding in terms of what's going on, to stand up and to be uh, unafraid, to speak your peace, to speak your truth in terms of what's going on, we don't stand much of a chance in terms of our lo- any longevity in the society. Clearly, we need institutions, we need we need those organizations that are going to going to deal with those issues that are pertinent to African people and pertinent to humanity generally. Because without that, then the situation becomes all the more dire. And having said it, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Same to you, Brother Hockey. We thank you for your contribution to today's program. And we will bring in Brother Anthony and Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Anthony. Are you with us, Brother Anthony? I think we may have lost Brother Anthony. So what we're going to do at this point in time, we'd like to remind everyone that don't forget to purchase your electronic book from Pan-Africa Roots as it deal with um, digitization of slave records, volume one and two. Go to the website, www.a-aprp.gc.org. And don't forget about the upcoming Freedom Ride Travel Challenge Tour to Cuba from July 23rd to the 31st. And you can do that by going to the website, www.aprp.gc.org. AAA dash Cuba C U B A tour T O U R S dot com or you can call eight oh four five four nine seven four nine two or two oh two seven one four nine four three five if you're interested in joining the African delegation. Until next time we'd like to always remember that we try to give you maybe not what you want but what you need. We're here to serve you because we recognize give you revolutionary Information is the key towards your liberation. We see you next week on part two, Kwame Ture and Liberation. And remember, this has been Africa on the Move, and we'll take you to Brazil as our artists talk about the historical struggles of Africans in Brazil. Palomino, we'll see you next week. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know.
must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, last through my journey, yeah. Arrival. We must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Life is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through 
my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah.
It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 